Greetings, everyone, and I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're ready for another creepy collection of seven creepy pastas from Mr. Creeps YouTube channel. That's a lot of creepy. Relax and get comfortable as we drift slowly into Mr. Creep's mind. There is something that lives in the forest outside my town. It's making us its prey. Written by Wolf McGrath. I live in a small town in central Alabama, and on nearly all sides, my town is surrounded by a forest. Growing up, I never thought anything of the forest. Many kids would play in it. We would get our hands on BB guns and play war games. Some of my friends and I would build forts out there. Nothing about it ever scared me. That was until someone went missing. I was in ninth grade when it happened. The kid that went missing was in the sixth grade. My town has a population of around 1,200, so there weren't many suspects that the police could go off of. The days of searching turned up nothing. After the fifth day, the search was called off, and the boy was declared dead. It was our little town's tragedy. For the next couple of years, no one allowed their kids into the forest for obvious reasons. Every year, there would be a ceremony to remember the kid, and all schools would let out early that day. Once again, however, more people went missing during a hunting trip. I was the only survivor. It was the end of my senior year, and to celebrate, my dad wanted to take me on a hunting trip. Maya was never really big into hunting like he was, but I decided to tag along, since I didn't spend too much time with my dad. He brought along two of his buddies, Randy who was around 5'10", and had a shaggy brown hair, and Hector who was 6'1", slightly chubby, and had balding blonde hair. I hadn't really interacted with them before the trip, so it was a little awkward at first. My dad said we would be in the woods for a good long time. He had planned for us to go early in the morning and come back late at night. He told me to pack whatever drinks and snacks that I wanted. I only brought water for my drink because I didn't want to get dehydrated. As for snacks, I brought the classics. Little Debbie's, chips, etc. I was given a 300 Winchester Magnum for my rifle. I had shot guns before, so I wasn't worried about misfiring or missing my target. The day we were going, I was woken up at like 4am by Hector. He told me that my dad and Randy were just about ready. I got up, and I put the clothes that I had picked out for that day on. When I went out to the kitchen, I grabbed an iced coffee out of the fridge. I saw my dad and his two friends were outside smoking. I could hear them loudly laughing and talking about the good old times. I got my things ready, and after only a couple of minutes of being awake, I stepped outside with my bag over one arm and my rifle over the other. Hey there, buddy. You ready to go? 
my dad asked, tossing his cigarette on the walkway and grinding it with his shoe. I sure am. I got everything that I needed. At the time, I was excited just to hang out with the grown-ups and see what my dad got up to. We made our way to my dad's truck, where Randy and Hector decided to ride in the bed instead of using their own cars. I sat up front next to my dad, who was starting the truck when I climbed in. It was just barely starting to get to dawn, the sky still that deep early morning blue. The temperature was around 70. The high that day would be 87. Not too bad. As we drove to the hunting grounds, Hector and Randy got tossed around in the back because the roads in town were not that well maintained. So, how do you feel going on this trip with your old man and my fellow dummies back there? He gave a hearty chuckle. I'm pretty excited. I'm glad you brought them along. They seem nice enough. Yeah, I figured it would be kind of boring just the two of us. And hey, you hadn't really talked to them up to this point. So, why not, you know? The drive was about 10 minutes. Along the way, me and my dad had a nice chat just about life. And everything that had been going on in each other's lives. Meanwhile, Randy and Hector were arguing about who would miss shots more often, and it kind of got heated, and my dad slammed on the brakes, which tossed them both into the cab. My dad busted out laughing when he did this. The way he laughed made it seem like it was the funniest thing in the world. Randy and Hector didn't share the same amusement. We made it to the hunting grounds and another truck was already there. It had a thin layer of dirt over it, which anything around my town got if you didn't clean it regularly. We got out and grabbed our things before making our way down the trail. My dad commented about some good spots to start with before we went deeper into the forest. We set up at a spot about a half mile down the trail. Hector immediately, upon sitting down, pulled a beer out of his bag. He tossed one to me and to Randy. I instinctively caught it, but then realized that I shouldn't have it and I tried to hand it back. Oh, come on now, you can drink that. You're an adult now, Hector said. I just don't really like alcohol, but thank you for the offer. He shrugged and took it back. Randy accepted the offer of free alcohol and began to drink his rapidly. My dad got my attention quietly, and pointed out towards a hill in the distance. It was hard to make out what exactly he was pointing at in the early morning light, but I was sure that it was a deer. You ready to see the first one of the day, guys? He got everyone's attention to try and show off how good of a shot he was. However, right when he was about to pull the trigger... Randy slapped him in the back of the head. This caused him to miss aim and completely miss the deer, which ran away. Randy cackled like a madman afterwards, exclaiming about how it was payback for earlier. I'll admit, he got a chuckle out of me as well. We waited at that spot for a couple more minutes before moving on. When we got to the next spot... 
I thought I saw someone off in the woods, away from any trail. I pointed it out to my dad, who thought that the person must be an idiot. Going off of the trails was a good way to get shot. Whoever it was seemed just slightly taller than the average person, but this wasn't really enough to make me nervous or anything like that. As everyone was setting up, the person slinked into a thicker area of trees and was gone from sight. I didn't think much of it. By this point in the trip, enough time had passed that the sun was now above the horizon, and the lighting was much better. I managed to hit a deer, killing it. Everybody seemed happy that I was able to do it on my first try. But like I said, I wasn't that big at hunting, so I wasn't terribly excited. The morning passed peacefully. Every now and then, I would catch glimpses of that dude moving throughout the trees. I never could get a good look at him because of how far away he was. It never crossed my mind that he might be following us. Another thing that never crossed my mind is that we never heard anyone else shooting, despite the fact that someone's truck was in the parking area. The day was fairly uneventful. We did the usual hunting things, like killing deer, comparing accuracies, and what have you. By around evening, I would say we were about six or seven miles into the hunting trail, and I was starting to get tired. I carried on, however, because I was having fun. We made it to the next spot, and when we got set up, we smelled rot. Now, this didn't really catch our attention because it's a hunting trail. Hector decided to look for the source of the rot. He said he wanted to move it away because it was smelling foul. He wandered off towards where he believed it was coming from and we paid a little attention to where he was actually going. He never came back. After about 30 minutes of his absence, Randy noticed that he still hadn't returned, and that rot smell was still present. When we were alerted to this fact, we started to look for him, calling his name and leaving the trail. After a while of searching and walking around, we too were lost. We couldn't remember which direction the trail was in. This resulted in an argument, which I was forced to break up, because it was the least productive thing we could be doing at that moment. When they stopped, my dad had the idea to try and listen for footsteps and follow whatever direction they were coming from. We all sat silent and a realization made my stomach sink. There was no noise at all. No wind, no rustling leaves, no birds sighing, nothing. It was dead still and silent. I looked at the sky to see if there was an oncoming storm, but it was totally clear. We did hear footsteps after a couple of silent seconds. They were coming from a thicker part of the forest. By this point, it was becoming increasingly dark. So, Randy pulled out a flashlight and he turned it on. 
We made our way into the thicker part of the forest. We stayed together so no one else would get lost. While looking around, I bumped into something wet. I was stunned, thinking that it had to be tree sap. But when I heard Randy scream, I was plunged into fear. I slowly turned to look at what I had bumped into. When I laid my eyes upon it, I proceeded to puke up the cheap snacks that I'd eaten earlier. It was human skin, strung up between two trees. Based on the flensed face, I could tell that it was once Hector. My mind was flooded with thoughts. My dad told us that we needed to get out of the forest now. My dad reasoned where to go, based on the direction that the sun had set. Randy and I followed him out of a desperation, not having any better ideas ourselves. We were moving swiftly through the trees, trying to get out as fast as possible. Occasionally, a branch would snag my clothes or hit me in the face. I heard Randy scream from behind me, and when I turned around, something that was around eight feet tall had picked him up, and it was taking him away. My dad pulled out his rifle and opened fire. The noise this thing made, it still haunts me to this day, and I keep having nightmares about it. It was a mixture between several different animals screaming. When it turned around, I was able to get a good look at it. It had one eye in the center of its head, and that was the only thing it had on its face. As for its proportions, its arms seemed longer than its body, although it was way slouched over. The texture of its skin was oily, and it was a dark gray color. It rushed towards my dad at a blinding speed, and it ripped him apart right in front of me. It had dropped Randy, who was now unconscious. I turned out my flashlight, and I stood as still as I could, as quietly as I could. I heard it walk over to where it had dropped Randy. It picked him up again, and it stomped its way off deeper into the forest. After what felt like an eternity standing there, I slowly moved over to my dad's body, and I grabbed the truck keys off his belt. I went in the direction that he had suggested, slowly and carefully. He was right. I came out of the forest a couple feet away from my dad's truck. I sprinted over to it, and I fumbled with the keys until I could unlock it. I left the town. A couple towns over, the police had caught up to me, because I was the primary suspect. However, after discovering the bodies in the shape that they were in, I was let go. They were under the impression that no human was capable of doing that. I left Alabama altogether. I live in Illinois now, 
To this day, I still wonder if that thing is still out there. Preying on hunters unfortunate enough to get lost in the forest. For the sake of everyone, I desperately hope not. My dad is not a monster, but the thing that replaced him is. Written by Archie Sunshine I didn't know it was happening at first. You can't blame me. I was only a kid when it started. I grew up in a small town in central Ontario with my father. My mother left when I was very young leaving him to raise me on his own. I was his pride and joy, his only son. I remember him saying how lucky it was a lot. How lucky I am to have a kid like you. He would say with a twinkle in his eye, after I had aced a test or scored a goal at one of my soccer games. I always felt happy to be his kid. All the adults around me loved my father. He was an upstanding citizen, a model member of the community. He worked as a lawyer, an attorney. He made enough money for our tiny little family to live perfectly comfortably. I had a good childhood, needless to say. It was only around the age of 11 when things started to change. My dad was still a good father, still loving and caring. But something changed. I can mark the day that it happened in my mind. The day that it stopped. The day when he left. Before it came back in his place. I had just lost my front tooth. I remember being so happy and excited to put it under my pillow. Eagerly awaiting the morning knowing I would find a toonie under my pillow for my troubles. I was all curled up in my bed, fast asleep. I felt my father shake me awake. I squinted up at him, eyes hazy without my glasses. The room was still dark and I could hear him breathing heavily. Lucas, kiddo. His voice was rushed and hoarse. Lucas, I don't have time to explain everything, okay? Everything is going to be uh, alright, okay? What's happening, Dad? I whined out just wanting to roll over and go back to sleep. He squeezed my scrawny arm tightly, keeping me facing him. I did something wrong, kiddo. I made a mistake. And I have to go away for a little while, Lucas. He said, struggling to keep his tone even. Where are you going? I asked, groggily. I'll, I'll only be out of town for a few days, I promise. I'll, I'll get Gracie to babysit. You like Gracie, remember? He was trying to sound jovial, like it was a good thing. At the time, I didn't think anything of it. I did like Gracie. She bought me pizza and chips for dinner. I hate to say it, but at the time, that was enough for me to accept it. I nodded, and he smiled at me. Good, I'm glad. I love you, Lucas, he said, planting a kiss on my forehead. 
those few days were good. I didn't even know what had happened. I ate pizza and I watched TV. I drew pictures for Gracie. I played hide and seek with my neighbors. And then my dad came back. He looked just like him. But he was cold all of a sudden. Quiet. Reserved when he wasn't before. He spent a lot of time away from me. He forgot to get the groceries some days. He forgot to come to my soccer games. Or put my ace test up on the fridge like he used to. He started spending more and more time in the backyard shed. Our once happy home was cold and gray. For the longest time, I was convinced that I had done something to make him hate me. It didn't stop at a neglectful father either. It was like the house itself had turned on me. It was an old house and we had had issues with it before. But something changed about it. I remember one day going to take a shower. I stepped into the old tub and turned on the water. Standing under the shower head and waiting for the water to come. For a long moment I waited. And then I heard the pipes creak. Murky rusty brown water hit me in a torrent. I stood there under it, unsure of what to do, red staining my hair, making me feel sick. I called for my dad out of confusion, leaping out of the tub and wrapping a towel under myself. When he showed up in the doorway, he looked me over, shivering from the cool air and drenched in disgusting water. And he laughed at me. He howled with laughter cruel in its amusement, and making my face burn with shame. I couldn't keep myself from crying. And even then, he just continued to laugh. Things only got worse from there. He didn't tuck me in at night anymore. He spent hours out in the shed, or in the attic, or fixing the pipes in the basement by the water heater. And the pipes acted up more and more. I would go to fill my water bottles and cups, only to find the pipes sputtering out rusty brown water. I would wake up to the sound of dripping, finding molding wet spots in the corners of the rooms, dribbling water from a leak somewhere in the ceiling. I asked him over and over again to go get a plumber, to go into the attic and fix it, that the problem wasn't with the water heater. But every time I mentioned the attic, he would get angry. He would stare me down and say, I don't let anyone in the attic. They would make a mess of all my hard work. I wasn't allowed to go in the attic anymore. Nor was I allowed in the shed or basement. The pipes weren't alone either. Next were the lights. Every time my father entered a room... The lights would sputter and flicker. I recall being in the kitchen one day. He came in to use the sink, and the ceiling light started to flicker before bursting. He hardly even registered it. He just looked at it blandly before leaving the room, leaving me to clean it up. I started acting up in school. I started yelling at teachers. I started handing in my work, half-finished, 
I started smoking cigarettes behind the portables, all in some desperate attempt to get my dad to even give me a second glance. None of it worked. Even when the teachers called home, all I would get was a tell them to stop calling. I don't like interruptions. I think ultimately it was my anger that clouded my perception of what was happening. I remember one night, I was just 15 at the time. I remember looking out the window of my bedroom, blowing smoke out through the screen. I saw the backyard light turn on and watched the gate to the backyard open. My father was there. He had started spending time out at night. I assumed he was just drinking, but I was clearly wrong. Because behind him, he dragged an old wagon with a tarp over it. Whatever was under it was lumpy and misshapen, twisted up and gnarled. He dragged it into the shed and closed the door behind him with a loud bang. I could hear the whir of tools from the shed, but nothing more. The next morning when I was getting ready for school, the TV was turned on. I didn't pay attention until the program was interrupted with breaking news. A hitchhiker had gone missing. They were last seen in a bar from the town over. I got a sinking feeling in my gut, but I didn't know where to place it. There was no way I could connect the two incidents. I couldn't say for sure that what was under that tarp was what I thought it was. It happened again two months later. A hitchhiker, this time last seen in our town. And that same night, the wagon with the tarp over it. And again, two months after that. This time, with a teenager from my school. I kept my mouth shut. I don't know why I did, but I kept quiet. Even as strangers and townspeople alike kept going missing. I couldn't admit that it was happening to myself. Even as I stopped yelling in class. Stopped handing assignments in late. Even as I tried to be good for fear of ending up like all those people in my father's shed. I was 16 when I received the letter. My father never checked the mail. It was always my job. I'm thankful for that now. Among the magazines, junk mail, and newspapers, there is a letter in a simple white envelope. I unfolded the paper, walking back up to my room. Lucas, it's been years since I saw you. Every day I regret leaving, and every day I wish this had never happened. I don't have much time to explain everything, but you have to believe me when I tell you that the thing you've been living with in our house is not your father. It's not me. It's wearing my face, and using my voice, but it isn't me. I know you won't believe me, but please, all I want is for you to be safe. I'm still out there. I had to run away. They said it would hurt you if I tried to intervene, but I'm still out there. I'm in a small town in northern Quebec. I can't specify further, 
but I'm in Quebec. I love you, son. Love, Dad. I stared down at the piece of paper, my hand shaking. I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe those words on that page more than anything. But I couldn't. It was just a twisted prank someone pulled on me. It couldn't be true. But no matter how much I told myself that it couldn't be real, that doubt seated itself in my mind. It was such an abrupt change. I was just sure that he had gotten sick of me. But that doubt was enough. A month passed before it happened again. I crept out of bed and down the stairs, taking the front door and going around the side of the house to make sure that he wouldn't hear me. The grass was wet under my sneakers, and the cool autumn breeze sent a chill down my spine. I kept low, finally reaching the shed. I could hear better now. There was no power tool sounds, but instead, I could hear wet tearing, like the sound of someone butchering a chicken, the wet pop and slurp of peeling meat from bones. I felt sick, but I had to be sure. I inched my way up, peeking in through the grimy window. I froze. Standing at the work table was that thing, that thing that stole my father's face. It was just like my father in every respect, but my father's face was peeled away, thrown back over its shoulder like the hood of a sweater, a seam down the middle. It wasn't real skin. It was like a rubber costume, lifeless and empty. The thing underneath his face, it was like it was rotting, graying and emaciated muscles with no flesh to keep it protected from the elements, mottled in media, like dry aging steak. There were holes through the skin and bone, small, like sockets for something to fasten the meat on. Its arms were spindly and just so wrong, bones bulging and stretching the skin, and bending in unnatural places. On its table was a body, or what was once a body before he had tore it apart. It was peeling the meat off the bones. My half expected it to start eating, but it didn't. It just set the meat aside. I wanted to look away. I wanted to run, but I just couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to move even as bile rose in my throat. It tossed the bones aside, and then reached up to its head, and pulled a chunk of mottled gray meat off its skull. My stomach lurched, but I couldn't tear my eyes away. I just stared at it in abject horror as it plucked a strip of meat off the table and shoved it into the place where its old flesh once was. And then it picked up a screw and screwdriver, and started bolting it back into place. I finally willed myself to move, queasily staggering across the yard and around the side of the house. I looked over my shoulder at it, but it was too busy. It couldn't hear me. I threw up at the side of the house into our trash can, my whole body shaking from head to toe. I felt faint, 
but I managed to make it inside and up to my room. I didn't sleep that night. I couldn't sleep that night at all. In the morning, I left for school, unsure of what to do. I didn't have long before he would catch on that I was acting different. I couldn't run. I was sure that he would catch me. There was only one thing that I could do. It was after school. It was sitting in the living room in his armchair like it always did. Eyes glued to the screen, completely still. Hardly even breathing. Just pretending to. It didn't ask how my school day was. Didn't greet me or even say hello. Good. I walked past it and up the stairs. The metal bat was heavy in my hands, but it fit in them snugly. I walked into the living room, behind him quietly, socked feet nearly silent on the carpet. I raised the bat over my shoulder. You know, after my father disappeared, I'd always thought that he looked different. Looser around the edges, too much like plastic, but just enough to not raise any alarm bells. But I think it was the shape of his face that tipped me off the most. The bones weren't his under there. Cheekbones too high, and eyes too sunken in. I think it must have borrowed a different skeleton. Whoever skeleton it was had been getting more and more fragile over those five years of pretending, because, as my back collided with the side of its head, the side of it sunk in with a loud, resounding crunch, like the sound of a piñata being hit. Mitt reeled to the side before staggering out of its chair, whirling itself around to face me with its now drooping skin half sloshing off. I didn't waste any time, swinging again and hitting the other side of its head with similar results. It tumbled to the ground, reaching out and letting out an agonized scream in my father's voice. I didn't feel any remorse, stomping down into its arm with a crack and hitting it again. And again and again and again, until its head was nothing but mush behind its mask. I breathed heavily, staggering backwards, staring down at it. I was still for a long moment. And then it began to writhe, flopping about like a fish out of water, convulsing and squirming. The body rolled itself over, back arching up and down. I heard tearing, my father's shirt drenched in blood before tearing open. My shield in my eyes, a bright light filled the room. Crawling out of the thing's chest was a being, a human-shaped person composed entirely of shifting and blinding light. It split open the creature's sternum, stands to its feet, and stares at me for a long moment. And then it faded away into nothingness, and I was alone in the living room. The steering wheel feels real under my hands. I left with the bag that I packed that morning and my father's wallet and keys, taking the car in my driveway and setting out for Quebec. It's been five days. Every time that I get any sleep, I have these dreams. Dreams of that thing made of light. But there are more of them, climbing into human bodies and looking for other humans that they can take to sustain their form or give to others. In my dreams, they leave me messages and letters that I can't understand. I scream at them that I don't know what they're talking about, but
but they know I will understand in time. I try not to sleep unless I have to. It doesn't matter what they tell me. It doesn't matter that I can see them walking in the forest at night and floating in the sky like the bodies of the drowned. I don't care how long it takes. I just want to see my dad again. I told a campfire story to my scout troop. I don't think it's just a story anymore. Written by Distorted Realities. Have you ever heard of the Bellium? I asked daringly, looking over the campfire. The children from the Girl Scout troop all shook their heads and leaned in close, anticipating the rest of the story that was to come. It was a hot summer night at a Girl Scouts camp just like this one. The sun had just started to set while the girls were wrapping up their campfire. They were eating s'mores when one of the girls suddenly jumped up and screamed. The other girls watched and laughed as dozens of spiders fell on her head. One of the girls let out aloud, You! Causing me to giggle before continuing the spooky tale. Well, she didn't know why all the other girls were laughing until she looked closer and saw that they were made of plastic. What a scaredy cat! One girl shouted. I can't believe you thought it was real. Laughed another. The girl, furious and upset, ran away from the campfire in tears. When the other girls went back to their bunks for the night, the girl that they had pranked was nowhere to be found. Instead, there was an ominous letter laying in the middle of the floor that warned them of their future karma. The leader of the troop, the one who had came up with the prank, gave it a mere laugh and threw it away. And then she and the other girls got changed into their pajamas for a movie night. As all youngsters do sometime in their life, the girls decided to sneak a scary movie into their cabin. The girls situated themselves at the TV and they began to watch. Eventually, the movie was so loud that the counselors next door could hear it. They came in and they confiscated the movie, scolding the girls and telling them to all go to bed. But again, as all youngsters do, the girls had a backup, and they started watching once again. This time, the movie was quieter, but it was still at a higher volume than most shows. As they bundled back up with blankets and snacks, they didn't notice the sounds coming from the forest surrounding the cabin. The movie was so loud, in fact, that they didn't hear anything at all. The camp leaders had no idea what was going on when they heard screaming coming from cabin number 9. They thought the girls had gone back to watching their scary movie. They decided it was too late to punish them now, and that they would have a talk in the morning. But for those girls in cabin number 9, morning never came. They were all found dead in the woods, hunted by some creature that no man had ever seen. The lone survivor was the girl who had been pranked earlier in the night. They found her rocking back and forth in the corner of the cabin with a smile on her face, repeating, Bellium, Bellium, Bellium. As I uttered those words, a figure leapt out of the woods, 
The girls ran off, screaming about the monster coming to get them. The creature doubled over in laughter and removed his mask, hugging me with a grin. And Dominic was always willing to lend a helping hand. We made our way back to the counselor's cabin with grins on our faces. Another one of the female counselors leaned over her magazine and asked, What was all that screaming about? And you get them with another one of your stories. I laughed a little and slung my arm around Dominic's shoulders. Yep, and thanks to this guy, it really came to life. I cooed with a wink. You're gonna give those girls nightmares. The girl tissed in response, but it was clear she wasn't truly angry. All of us counselors got amusement from watching the girls beg for scary stories at night, and then run back to their cabins and screams. It brought us back to our own days at camp, when we were the little kids in scout uniforms, begging to hear just one more, promising that we were brave and wouldn't get too scared that time. Those times were long ago, but they were memories all of us held close to our hearts. And now that we had all grown up and become counselors ourselves, we got to know what it felt like to be on the other side of the story. After sharing the details of the prank, Dominic and I parted ways, my friend going back to his house and I going to the counselor's bunk. I remembered the first time that I heard the story of the Bellium. My great aunt had told it to me while we were on a vacation in the mountains. Back then, I hung on to every word and truly believed them. As a child, I would have never dared to play a joke on a camper in fear that I would meet the Bellium myself. Now that I had grown up though, I no longer held on to that fear. I knew it was just an old wives tale that moms and grandmas and aunts told the children to keep them out of trouble. I didn't need to abide by childish rules anymore. I charted down some things in my diary before sliding the book under my pillow and shutting my eyes. A loud boom from the window jolted me out of bed, graggily rubbing my eyes. I glanced at the clock to see that it was midnight. Strangely, none of the other counselors were in bed. The bang from the window came again, followed by lightning. I wasn't expecting there to be a storm that night, but I suppose the weatherman couldn't always be right. Just as I was about to slip back into bed, I felt a familiar feeling. This is not the time to go to the bathroom, I thought scornfully. But I dragged myself back up and I ventured outside. The thunder crashed around me as I raced through the mud and into the bathroom building. Grateful that nobody was around, I went to relieve myself. As I had finished in the stall, however, I heard something coming into the bathroom. At first, I thought there must have been another counselor or a camper that needed to go too. I felt bad for whoever it was. Trekking through that storm sucked. I came out of the stall to find a girl that I had never seen before. She rocked back and forth and back and forth, and clutched a letter in her hand. A wide grin stretched across her face and she whispered, They're all dead. Frustrated with what must have been a prank set up by the children of the camp, I started to berate the girl, until she disappeared right before my very eyes. Bewildered, I made a dash from the bathroom to the yard, but I stopped dead in my tracks. 
All around me were the strewn bodies of my fellow counselors and camp attendees. Even the girl that I had talked to just hours ago about the prank was laying in a pool of blood. I dropped to my knees and screamed, but that wasn't the right move. A loud thumping sound came from the woods and before I knew it, I was face to face with the bellium. I jumped up with a start, heart racing, and coming down from adrenaline, I couldn't help but laugh. I really needed to watch what stories I told those kids. If they were giving me nightmares, they would surely scare a bunch of preteens. Sighing, I looked at the clock to see that it was midnight. Lightning flashed from a nearby window, illuminating the room. The other counselors were safe and sound in their beds. From the closet, however, was a strange noise. It almost sounded like the footsteps from my dream. But that wasn't possible, was it? The bellium wasn't real. I turned over and I heard the noises again. Petrified, I grabbed my phone and started to write this story. I hope it gets to the right person. Solo reconsidered pulling a prank like I foolishly did. I don't know what's going to happen next. But the closet door is starting to open. Humans have a natural fear of the dark. The dark is one of our biggest enemies. The dark is what we fear the most. As we got stronger, we feared the dark less and we could fight the unknown in the dark. However, the fear has always lingered in our animal brains. The part of our brains that tells us information that saves our lives. The one that tells us to fight or flight. The ones that makes us check twice to see if that really is a floating ghost. Or just a pile of clothes in the dark. And you never ignore this part of your brain. One day, you might regret it like I did. I take walks with my dog from 3am to 3.33am. The illogical side of my brain always tells me not to, but the illogical side says that nothing bad would happen. My dog is a German Shepherd and I am a 6 foot 9 inch male. I don't believe in ghosts and I doubt muggers would try and rob me if they were ever to come by. I walk straight and take a right turn to circle back to my house. There is a forest at this turn. I never really look at it, but I make sure to walk a bit faster when my back is turned. This time, I decided to go into the forest in the dark. My instincts, the illogical side of my brain, made up scary images and ideas to scare me away from the pitch black forest. It even linked into my logical side of my brain. I stood there. I couldn't move. I breathed in for four seconds and then breathed out and walked. Stop. Don't walk. I heard. It was my own voice that called out to me. The voice in my head. My subconscious. I guess it was trying to prevent me from walking to a death trap, but I carried on. I walked on the path, surrounded by trees. I couldn't see the sky. I couldn't see beyond the trees. Heck, I could barely see in front of me. It was cold and my dog practically hugged my leg. I was sweating and I decided to walk back. I was only 8 meters into the forest yet when I looked back. 
I couldn't see the exit, nor the path. Just more trees. I heard a twig break. I snapped behind me and saw nothing out of the ordinary. And then a couple of leaves had crunched. I turned back. Nothing out of the ordinary. I walked in that direction, hoping that I would see the path again. I turned in my phone for light. It also said 3.16am. A large tree branch broke off, and a scream about 80 meters followed right after. It was like a woman screaming for her life. It came closer and louder. It wasn't long before I realized that it was coming from my direction. I took off the leash of my dog and I said run. I bolted opposite the screaming. My dog right beside me terrified as much as I was. I ran as quickly as I could with all the trees in my way. The screaming suddenly stopped. I kept running but eventually slowed down. I turned to my dog, only to see nothing there. I stupidly shouted, Maxie! I regretted it as a voice behind me spoke. It was a chilling, deep voice. Greg! It spoke. I turned around slowly to see a dark figure with red eyes. How, uh, how do you know my name? I whimpered. Greg, you should have listened to me. It spoke. The red eyes connected with the line. It was then I realized that it was its mouth. It grinned from ear to ear with its red mouth. It showed its teeth. Dark red and sharp. Its eyes opened. It was a red outline with white around a purple spot. You should have listened to me, Greg. It spoke again, but its mouth didn't move. I checked my phone. 3.16. I looked back up and it was slightly closer. No way was it still the same minute. That was impossible. Tick-tock, Greg. Time's running out. It spoke to me once again as it took another step forward. I say another step, but I looked down and it had no legs. Time's running out, Greg. What? What is that supposed to mean? I asked with a shiver. Time's up. It spoke before it jumped at me. Its face opened up, and I felt a large mouth bite down on my neck. I blacked out for a solid two seconds, and then I awoke in front of the forest. I checked the time. 3.16 a.m. I felt my dog beside me as happy as ever. I took a deep breath and I looked at the forest. I saw the monster there, with its face smiling at me. It stared into me as it slowly disappeared back into the forest. I ran back home with my dog. I checked the mirror with the light on it to see a faint scratch mark. The lights went out. I shut my eyes. Usually, I would carry on doing what I was doing until it became impossible in the dark. But no way was I about to disobey my instincts again by looking into a mirror in the dark. The lights came back on. I fell asleep with the lights on. The next day, I was talking to my girlfriend who was French. She told me that when she was younger, she was on a bridge and had experienced something similar to what I had experienced. My heart sank and I asked her what it meant. She was surprised and said that it had translated to 
call of the void. Will your brain imagine something stupid like jumping off a cliff? My hand went to my neck where I saw the mark. I felt nothing, although I should have. Is there something on my neck? I asked her. No. She replied swiftly, as if nothing was wrong. I went back on my walk again. For the last time, this time, I brought my girlfriend. I said it would be romantic or whatever if we did. And she accepted. I walked to the forest and I looked at it. I saw the monster's face. My girlfriend asked what I was looking at. And clearly she couldn't see it. She said that she wanted to walk into the forest a bit. But I denied it after what had happened. She said that she felt something telling her not to do it. But she wanted an adrenaline spike. She walked right in. The last thing I heard was these screams of her. The same screams that I had heard earlier. They found her body mangled and ripped apart. They say it was from a bear, but I knew better. I never walked into the forest. Instead, I imagined what would happen and it stopped me. Uh, my girlfriend couldn't say the same. She denied her instincts and paid the price. She walked into the dark like I almost did. Listen to your instincts. Fear the dark. If you find a roadside bar in Appalachia at night, don't stop driving. Written by Mock Sorrel Last Saturday, my daughter and I took one of our trips to the flea market, a little ways outside of our home in Asheville. She's 15, so she ran off to the carding gaming shop at one end, leaving me to take my time browsing the stalls. I ended up taking home a box of restaurant-grade cooking stuff for a good price. And those stainless steel heavy whisks can't be beat. When we got home, I took everything out to clean it and found a little spiral notebook at the bottom of the box. I've written down what I read in there for y'all to hear. I woke up for work about an hour before my shift at dusk. I made my way around my part of the duplex as I dressed myself in my crappy work clothes. I listened to Audrey snore, still sound asleep from her shift the night before. It felt like it had been weeks since I had actually seen Audrey. She was always snoring by the time that I got home and always gone by the time that I woke up. I didn't pass her on my way to or from the restaurant anymore either. I left as sunset faded into dusk, another part of the ritual that I participate in every other day. I haven't ever had a specific starting time for my shifts. I've always arrived at dusk and left at dawn and it's always worked. The evenings in the mountains get cold quickly even during late spring. It's a different climate from the rest of the south. So I was still wearing a hoodie on most of my walks to work. I must have left a little later than that night, for the sky was already stained purple in the direction of the sinking sun and a smattering of stars were visible behind me. The wooden steps of the duplex were dark and slick with rainwater, so I descended them carefully on my way down to the clearing. The two-story cabin-style duplex that I share with my coworkers sits on the edge of the tree line with its back to untamed wilderness 
and its front to a metal that is currently washed with ankle-high yellow flowers the size of my thumbnail. It's beautiful, but I've noticed that walking through the flowers tires me out and it makes it hard to breathe. I've stopped smoking on the way to work and it's helped out a little. I left too late that night, and I think that was the first rule, although unwritten that I broke. The flowers weren't bothering me much, but the fog that had settled after the day's rain was. It was making it hard for me to see, and if the restaurant wasn't a straight shot from our quarters, I may have been in trouble. I blamed the feelings of unease that started as soon as my feet left the bottom step on the fog and I made my way to work. I knew that it was in the fog that had me feeling watched. This had happened to me a few times before, but only when I had first started and it was trying to scare me. Don't turn around no matter what. I had been advised. The feeling of multiple sets of eyes boring into my back of my head put my hair on end. But it wasn't something that I was unused to. It was a rule that the little two-part door that separated my kitchen from the front of house had to remain open. So I was more than accustomed to having the back of my head watched as I went about preparing orders. If our customers weren't talking to the other staff member or one another, they were watching me. It was the smell that put the pep in my staff. If you've ever put your face in a box of old portobello mushrooms... Then you won't have trouble imagining the scent that suddenly overpowered the stuffy wet smell of fog. But the earthy smell was soured by the sharp, body fungus odor that accompanied it. The scent of athlete's foot came in waves that corresponded with the sound of a dragging pair of feet. I had felt it watching. I had even smelled it. But never before had I heard its unique, lopsided gait. It sounded like it walked with an injury and its steps echoed as though placed on a wooden deck instead of a solid, grassy ground. Just as with the smell, the sound appeared without any build-up or steady approach. It was simply absent one moment, and unignorable the next. Though I picked up my pace, I didn't run. I knew that if I acknowledged it, it won. It wasn't my job to acknowledge it or anything else anyway. I just make the food. It continued to thump and drag along behind me, and I started whistling a tuneless song to show that I wasn't bothered as I speed walked up the hill. The flowers were making it hard to catch my breath and keep whistling, but I persisted. I could see the warm orange glow of the street lamp in the parking lot at the top of the hill, and I relaxed a little, but I didn't dare slow down. Behind me, an unwanted accompaniment joined my whistling. The sound grew in pitch and reminded me of when my college friend would test her homemade oboe reeds. I jogged the rest of the way. The musk dissipated when I hopped up the step on the back deck to safety, and the fog cleared without warning as well. I slipped through the back door and I shut it tight. I leaned against the door and I breathed in deep trying to slow my pounding heart and return to normal. You okay, little one? I was relieved that Adrian had, for once, arrived before me. He was seated at the bar, counting out his drawer, as I tried to smile and offer reassurance that I was indeed okay. Since he had been there longer than any of us, Adrian probably had a good idea of what happened and didn't question me. 
instead returning to his counter as I straightened up and headed into the kitchen to start my night. Because Adrian and I had the same name, Adrian and Adrienne, he had taken to calling me a low one, which Audrey had adopted as well when I would still see her. She and Adrian were good friends, but now neither of us see her much. She works exclusively with the other cook, Avery, who lives on the ground level of the duplex with Adrian. Now, I've never met Avery, but he does a good job closing up. Working for this little roadside restaurant and bar comes with more oddities outside of scheduling. We never get shipments or trucks. The food is always stocked, and I only have to do a little prep on my nights. The beer and liquor are always full and ready as well. Even on our busy nights, I've never seen Adrian blow a keg, and I've never had him to tell me to 86 a menu item. In that regard, it's a very easy job. The customers are what makes it difficult, but that's how it always is. Adrian told me that I got lucky after my first week. It was the dead of winter and slower than usual, so all of our business came by a way of weary late-night travelers. One such traveler stuck out. I assumed he was just a peculiar guy with some money and a love of vintage clothing, for he was all bundled up in a long wool peacoat and a plaid scarf. With not much else to do, I leaned on the kitchen door and listened to him make small talk with Adrian as he ate the food that I had prepared for him. After he paid his tab, he stood and pulled on a pair of leather driving gloves. You know, he said, I drive this route every winter on the way to my parents' house in Landrum. You know where Landrum is. I watched Adrian nod and open his mouth to offer a personal anecdote, but the man cut him off before he could. And I've never seen this place before. You're a fine barkeep. Adrian thanked him, and not long after I heard the front door open and fall shut, marking the departure of the night's only patron. Adrian met me at the door, then telling me that I'd had it easy for my first week. I offered little more than a sarcastic, Oh, really? in response. Being so new to the workplace, I was still shy and hesitant in conversation with my new co-workers. This would change a few days later, when I witnessed my first seasonal regular. Wet, heavy snow fell over those next few days and business slowed to a halt. After warming up from my icy trudge to work, I spent my shifts doing not much else besides listening to Adrian talk about his life outside of work. He went on about girls that he knew back home, how he couldn't wait to see his daughter and take her to Lake Lure, and so on, which was a pleasantly normal reprieve from this off-kilter place. It was an unusually hostile night, where the snow fell hard and fast and the wind's mournful song was almost louder than the speaker in the kitchen. When the unexpected sound of the front door took Adrian's attention from whatever story he had been telling me, I listened to him greet his customers ever casual and didn't bother to stand up from where I was kneeling to scrub the wall under a prep table. I then realized that I could smell campfire smoke. The smell grew to overwhelm the rest of the kitchen smells, ultimately becoming so strong that it reminded me of standing right in the middle of a plume of bonfire smoke. I got up to investigate. 
At first glance, the dining room and bar were empty save for Adrian, who was occupying himself by wiping the bar down. The lights were dimmer than usual, but nothing seemed out of place. Maya's were drawn to the corner of the room closest to the front door, though the space appeared to be empty. When my eyes adjusted, I discovered that in the corner, hardly distinguishable from the wooden walls, a figure stood unmoving. The bipedal figure was made entirely out of loosely bundled sticks. It had a stiff, handmade look to it, a stick doll the size of an adult man and standing on its own. Its head consisted of long, flexible switches that formed a loop like the eye of a needle. The first one I noticed was accompanied by two others. One stick man stood in the corner by the back door, and the other startled me when I noticed it in the corner to the left of the kitchen door. They didn't do anything but stand there and look unsettling. Adrian ignored them and moved on to washing glasses and the bar sank. I stared at the one by the front door for a while, my mind reeling as I tried to figure the thing out. I felt that I should ignore them too, but something about their presence was mesmerizing. They weren't doing anything, but my eyes wanted nothing more than to stare through the hole in their stickheads. A face should have fit in that blank oval, anything to fill the negative space. Eventually, they moved. In unison, the stickmen left their corners walking, if you can call it that, with purpose to the corner recently vacated by their companion to the left. Their movement was stiff and awkward, and exactly what you would expect from something with no knees or hips. The bundled sticks that comprised their rudimentary appendages shuddered as they walked, as though a strong wind was blowing through them, despite the restaurant's stagnant airflow. The sound that accompanied their steady journey was also that of wind through barren branches, much like the sound of the forest behind the duplex at this time of year. Before they settled in place, I took my attention away from them and found another chore to busy myself with for the duration of their stay. Eventually, Adrian reappeared in the kitchen threshold to tell me that they were gone. When I asked him what the heck that was all about, he offered no explanation other than that they came in during snowstorms and were terrible tippers. I haven't seen them again, but the mobile stickmen were far from the last strange season or regular. The winter brought more strangely dressed but seemingly human customers, including a peculiar old man without any hair at all, and a hooked nose with red spider webbed cracks at its point. He wore nothing save for navy blue long johns and cleared two full handles of green label Evan Williams in an hour. There's also a party of six creatures with oily feathers, skinny human legs and blank, white barn owl faces that push two tables together, make a racket all night. They always leave a mess, but Adrian says that he makes good money when they come in. Since spring started, a group of three women in sheer black gowns have started coming in to eat and drink. I'm not sure how they do it, for their faces lack visible miles and instead resemble a long-nosed theater mask made from thinly stretched pale flesh. Their eyes are almond-shaped and completely green, devoid of sclera or pupils. Every other night, I make food for these creatures and more, 
some not worth describing and some completely indescribable. The money is good, but it doesn't seem like I'll ever get a chance to spend it on anything. All of my material necessities are accounted for, so I don't have any reason to work other than that I feel I absolutely have to. Aside from being followed on my way to work by an unseen, mushroom-scented entity, this night was promising to be like any other. I was going through the motions of setting up for business, and Adrian was doing the same. We were laughing and chatting like any other co-workers at any other restaurant, and the terrifying encounter I'd had on my way to work was soon at the back of my mind. It was nearly time to unlock the front door when... I heard Adrian let out an exasperated groan. I poked my head out to ask him what was wrong, and found him staring at a folded piece of paper with narrowed eyes. I asked him what was up. Marjorie couldn't have done a better job at hiding this from me, he said, waving the paper around. Now I gotta bust my butt to have it posted before opening. What's that? I asked. And just these stupid regulation notice the bosses want posted across the street at the start of every month. I frowned. This was the first that I had heard about it. But it wasn't completely weird given what passes for normal around here. I'll be right back, Adrian said as he pulled on his jacket. A bolt of nervous lightning struck me when I realized that Adrian was about to leave me alone in here. I had been alone at the restaurant before but never for long, and never after being antagonized like I had been that evening. I felt like a wimp when I sheepishly asked if I could come with him across the street. My unease must have been written on my face for he agreed without hesitation. I grabbed my hoodie from the back and I pulled it over my head as I followed him out. Adrian locked the front door behind us and we stepped off the concrete front patio into the gravel roadside parking lot. The clouds that had dominated the day had returned, and were now casting downy shadows over the moon as they moved across the sky. As we approached the asphalt river that the bar had banked on, I thought that it looked wider than I had remembered. The reflectors through its middle were hardly visible in the cloud cover, and the shadowy shapes beyond the other side of the road were a scrambled mess of black and deep blue. The pool of orange from the streetlights in the parking lot felt like a point of no return, the final docking station before a faithless leap into nothingness. Beside me, Adrian sighed, his breath becoming smoke in the chilly mountain air. He clutched my hand without warning and pulled me along across the weathered street. My night vision was worse than I had expected, for the large tree and its fledgling greenery didn't come into view until we were halfway across the street. The massive, ancient tree stood out from the rest of the tree line, lying in wait for us. When we reached it, Adrian led the way to the side of its trunk farthest from the road, where I noticed a carved hollow at its base. A white woven basket sat empty in it. I stared at the curious basket as Adrian unfolded this month's rolls and prepared to stick them on the tree. I turned my gaze from the basket to the previous rule sheet, which was still pinned to the tree trunk by two nails. The note appeared to have been printed off from a computer, and its words in black ink were discolored, 
and smeared from weeks of weather. Adrian swore under his breath upon reading the last line. It read in bold font, Come alone. I scanned the rest of the rules, finding them very mundane. They didn't seem to apply to us. I looked up at Adrian with raised eyebrows, but he continued staring at the sheet of paper. What does that mean? I asked. The panic in Adrian's eyes had not yet reached me. He shook his head. How are you supposed to know? I said. I'll take the blame. I reassured him as he tore down the old note and stuck the new one on the nails. How would the boss even find out? It was disturbing me how quickly his jovial demeanor had turned. They might be playing a joke, he said, his voice scarcely a whisper. Yep, come on now. I grabbed his wrist and began leading him around the tree to return to our roadside sanctuary. The light in the parking lot looked so far away from here, like the road had stretched and widened. We had almost reached it when the headlights had appeared, and the lights were blinding LEDs, those oppressively bright lights that almost looked blue in their intensity. They didn't approach, they only appeared, suddenly and far closer to us than they should have been, as though their source had been waiting for our approach to switch them on. They were accompanied by what I believed to be the sound of an idling engine. We stopped short, squinting in the light, barely making out the hulking black shape that they belonged to. Adrian stepped back to the grass first, dragging me with him. The thing, which I knew had to be a vehicle, reversed back up the road as we did. I looked up at Adrian, who was focused on the vehicle, glaring at it daring it to try something. We stepped forward. The truck inched forward with us. It moved effortlessly in time with our steps, posing as a threat and yet lulling us into the belief that its movement was predictable. Adrian backed us up so that we were in line with the rural tree. From that point, the truck's lights were its only visible part, and they illuminated the road before us. Adrian dropped my trembling hand, I heard him say, screw it, before he ran out into the high beams. The thing that ran head-on into Adrian was neither organic nor machine. It seemed to clip into existence right as Adrian reached the middle of the road, jolting forward on four still legs. As its flat, mouthless head and the pale spikes of its antlers made contact with Adrian's body, so small and frail in comparison the light in its round, blank LED eyeballs flickered. What we had believed to be the sounds of an idling engine got louder when it hit him, sounding more like the scream of a mountain lion made by scraping, grinding pieces of metal. I screamed while I watched as my friend was skewered and then tossed over the creature's stretched, fawn-colored back and onto the asphalt. The thing continued its lurching sprint down the road unbothered by the obstacle that it had overtaken. My legs buckled and my head became light with the force of the air, leaving my lungs and throat in a shot, fearful wail. I didn't look both ways before I fled to Adrian's side. I fell hard to my knees without noticing the pain and blood from skinning them. As I brushed his brown hair from his forehead, I had to force myself not to look down, 
at the mangled mess of his upper body, made by the forceful impact of those antlers. Adrian's eyes were trying to focus while I promised that I would get help and that he would be okay. The arm that hadn't been punctured reached aimlessly around before I caught it, accidentally glimpsing a deep, red-black hole between his ribs. I could hear Adrian croak out something about Lake Lure before he winced and screwed his eyes shut from the pain. He became unresponsive, and my shouts became louder. I must have blacked out not long after, for the last thing I remember before waking up in my bed is apologizing to Adrian. I sat bolt upright, sweaty, and teary-eyed, and realized that I could hear Avery snowing from her room. It was only then, as my reality shifted into focus, that I could almost believe that night had been a dream. I tried my best to shake it off and get ready for work. When I left, the sun was setting, and the field of yellow flowers was alive with the whirring chitter of insects and bird calls. It must have been a lovely day, judging by the fading sunset colors, but not that I had been awake to appreciate it. Sometimes, this secret place is beautiful, but that did little to help the fact that I still couldn't shake the feeling that the events of two nights ago were real, and not just some long, horrible dream. My walk to the restaurant was uneventful. Even the flowers seemed to leave me alone, and it gave me enough time to decide over a cigarette that if Adrian showed up tonight, I could come to terms with having only dreamt seeing him impaled on the antlers of a monster. Though the emotions I felt upon waking were genuine, they were fading, becoming hazy like dreams do, and taking the dreadful images with them. I wished the walk to work could have been longer, for the sight of the bar at the top of the hill filled me with dread tonight. I took a deep breath before pushing the door open, savoring the last few seconds of uncertainty, knowing that these were the last moments where I would not know for sure if Adrian was alive or dead. Immediate nausea struck me when I found the restaurant empty. I called out for Adrian and I checked the bathrooms and kitchen before sinking down on the floor, miserably accepting that he was gone and that I had had a selfish hand in it. After trying to cry and wondering in frustration why my body wouldn't let me, it occurred to me that I could have checked for these scrapes on my knees as proof. Unsure as to why I hadn't remembered that sooner, I yanked my jeans up over my calves and struggled when I got the bunched fabric up to my knees. As soon as the bottom of a fresh scab became visible, I heard the back door close. I startled and looked up at Adrian standing in front of me, completely uninjured, carrying a sweatshirt in the arm that I knew I had seen bloody and broken. What you doing down there, little one? He asked, apparently finding it amusing that I was looking frightened in the floor, with my jeans bunched up to my knees. Adrian! Relief flooded through me as I pulled myself up from the floor beside the bar. I don't remember all that I said when I started in on him, but it must have included many expletives, questions, and an incoherent recount of what had happened, for he was clearly nonplussed by the time that I contained myself. The response Adrian offered was the last that I had expected. He said, that's terrifying, but you know my name's not Adrian. 
What? Yeah, it's Benny. Stop messing with me, girl. You know my name. We've worked together for months. He started going about his routine for setting up, looking around behind the bar and informing me that Audrey hadn't left any hidden notes for him tonight. I stood there and stared at him, dumbfounded. He headed back into the kitchen to pull the drawer from the safe. When he returned and saw me still standing there, grappling with my own experiences, he asked me if everything was okay. I was lost for words. If you're feeling sick and need tonight off, that's no problem, he said, trying his best to help. I shook my head and I waved him off. I couldn't deny that. For all I knew about him, he was acting exactly as he would in this situation. His mannerisms, voice, and appearance were the same, as they had been before I had gotten him killed. He even seemed to remember the folded-up rule sheet behind the bar and the nickname that he had given me. If I could only accept his insistence on his name having been Benny all this time, I could continue on with my life. So I assured him that I would be fine, and I went on to start my work night. I was in deep thought, searching for an explanation or some way to rationalize this turn of events, when Adrian, or Benny, or whoever the heck he is, entered the kitchen. He looked over the shelf above the compartmentalized kitchen sink, searching for something along the cardboard boxes. You can't let this place get to you too much, you know. I used to have vivid dreams that I swore were real too, but I don't dream anymore. He pulled the stepladder out from beside the standing freezer and climbed up to reach a box of black plastic forks stored on the shelf. I conceded that he was right, therefore admitting that I had surely only been dreaming. Sure, I had only dreamt up these scabs on my knees from falling on the street beside his punctured, bloody body. I had dreamt that antlered, mechanical animal that had hit and killed him. I had dreamt the last several months where he had been named Adrian. I dreamt the night we met and laughed when we found out that we had the same name. I had been forced to accept everything else about this place that was horrifying and wrong, so I could accept that I was wrong as well. Right. And that's why I've written all this down. I need a concrete record that I can return to, because I know what I saw, and I am sure of my experiences. But it is clear to me that the entities controlling this place are capable of returning their servants, their employees from death, and rewriting our memories. It's all that I can do. I know that I cannot escape and will continue working. Working, working, even beyond death. But they would have you believe that's what we're meant to do. It's the same for everyone else. So why am I so afraid? That's everything written in there. The rest of the pages are blank. The sensible part of me thinks it's just someone's pet project or something. But there's a reason that I posted it here anyway and haven't shown my daughter. Her dad, my ex-husband, disappeared somewhere on the mountain roads when he was coming to pick her up for summer vacation eight years ago. He was planning to take her to Lake Lure. I'm the lone survivor of a virus our military tested. Written by Aroma Goma. These events happened two years ago. I can't take it anymore. 
and thus I need to tell people about my experience. My name is Jeffrey, and I am a 27-year-old IT specialist who used to work for a multinational company based in Southeast Asia. Our office occupies the A4 of a 25-story building in the central business district of the country's capital. The lobby is located on the first floor, while the food hall is on the second floor. The parking area is from basements 1 through 9. Our country is predominantly Catholic. That is why religious holidays usually mean special non-working days for employees. The Holy Week is celebrated yearly by all Catholics. It starts on Palm Sunday all the way to Easter Sunday. The long weekend starts on Thursday. BPO companies usually keep a skeletal workforce during this long holiday to ensure that international clients will still be served. It was the Thursday before Palm Sunday when all of the vacation leaves were filed for the coming holidays. I didn't file mine because I don't really have anywhere to go. My family lives 450 kilometers away from the city. My hate long travels thus, I didn't bother to book a bus ticket to go home. Besides, it was just a few days and almost every person in the business district will either go to their provinces for a vacation or to visit their families. The city will be vacated by millions of people, which is perfect for an introvert like me. My apartment is a 30-minute walk from the office. If you take public transport, it's a 10-minute ride without traffic and an hour ride with traffic. Wednesday night. Six people will be left here at the office to work through the holidays. Don't worry, as you're sure to have the Christmas holiday off. The ones who will be staying will be Jeffrey, Mark, Kevin, Anna, Jeff, and me. To the rest of you, have a good holiday. Enjoy your time with your family and stay safe. Ronald, our boss, had said to conclude the meeting before everybody left. Ronald was about 5'6", a bit chubby and bald. He always wears a gray long sleeve polo shirt with a friendly smile. Hey buddy, you want to grab a bottle or two before leaving? Ask my best friend Kevin. He is 25 years old and he lives nearby. He's approximately 5'7", with a slim build. Sure, let's go, I said. We bid goodbye to our boss, walked a few meters from our desk to the office door, and we badged in our IDs and got to the elevator. Why didn't you file to leave? Aren't you going to your province? I asked Kevin. Christmas holidays are better. And beside, the workload isn't at all heavy during Holy Week. And plus, it's triple pay. Kevin replied. We went on with our night and drank two bottles while discussing our must-play games for the PlayStation. We wrapped up at around 11pm and went on our way home. Kevin lives 30 minutes away from my apartment with his brother. Thursday. I got up at around 8am. I cooked two eggs with rice and I drank coffee. I took a bath and I wore a black shirt with jeans and I went on my way to work. It was exhilarating to be in the business district on the holiday because it's a totally different world. The usual thousands of cars that you'll see on the road are all on their way to their vacation spots. The millions of people walking to their jobs are all on their merry way, 
stressing themselves out in traffic on the highways going out of the city. I was all jolly and a bit artsy, taking pictures of the empty streets for my Instagram account. After all, it's not every day you get to see a bustling metropolis this empty. It was around 9.30 when I got to the intersection across from our building. I immediately noticed an ambulance and a few soldiers in front of the main entrance. The pedestrian crossing light still has a minute left before turning green. I decided to send a message to Kevin. Hey bud, you in the office yet? I'm here at the pedestrian crossing. Did you see the ambulance? What's going on? I texted. About 10 seconds later, my phone vibrated and I read his reply. Yeah, I honestly don't know, but according to Ronald, it was a guy who fainted at the food hall 20 minutes ago. He was right behind the guy, queuing for coffee when he fainted. I crossed the street as soon as the lights turned green. After a minute of walking, I got close enough to the ambulance to see two emergency personnel loading a stretcher with a man on a respirator. He looked to be in his late 30s. They were escorted by two soldiers equipped with rifles. Five other soldiers were spread out the loading and unloading bay just outside of the main entrance. I paid no mind to them and just headed inside. Good morning, sir. Mr. Cruz, the guard, greeted me as I put my stuff on the scanner. What happened to that guy? I asked, hoping he would spill more info since he was a jolly and chatty dude in his late 40s. Yeah, we think it's a heart attack. It happened upstairs in the food hall when he was trying to get coffee. According to the barista, after taking a sip, he coughed really hard and even spilled the cup of the floor and then he fell. The ambulance got here five minutes after, followed by the soldiers. I'm wondering why these soldiers were here as well. That could happen to anyone. Anyway, I should go. Ronald is already waiting upstairs. Thanks for the chat, Mr. Cruz. Welcome, sir, and take care. Have a nice day, said Mr. Cruz. I proceeded to the elevator lobby, got in an empty car, and I pressed the A button. The door is closed, and I got to my floor after about 10 seconds. When the door is opened, I saw Anna and Jeff standing on the 8th floor elevator lobby. Good morning, guys. Where are you off to? I asked. Hey, good morning. We're on our way to the food hall to grab a cup of coffee. You want anything? Asked Jeff. Nah, I'm good, thanks. I replied and went to the security doors. I badged in my ID, opened the door, and headed to my desk. I saw Ronald sitting in front of his desk, sipping his cup of coffee. He saw me and waved hello. I responded back. I got in my cubicle and I booted my laptop. Kevin, who was sitting beside me, showed me his screen. He was watching a video of a cat getting scared of cucumbers. And we both laughed it off. And we proceeded to work, opening our support tickets and making a few calls to clients to gather more info regarding their problems. It was around 1pm when Kevin asked me, Is it just me or is our connection really slow? I've been trying to load this video for like 3 minutes already. It usually just takes a few seconds for this to work. I checked my network connection but to no avail. We had just lost our company internet. We stood up and walked to Mark's desk. He's the network administrator, thus he is supposed to know the status of our network. 
Mark is in his late 30s, a dark-skinned and a single dad. Hey Mark, what's wrong with the internet? We lost our connection a few minutes ago, I asked. I'm checking in now as well, but to no avail. I'll call their provider and give me a few minutes. He picked up his desk phone and dialed in a few numbers. His expression changed from annoyance to worried in a few seconds. Our phones are down. It looks like this weekend's gonna be a hell week for me, dang it, said Mark. My cell doesn't have any signal. Does yours have any? Kevin asked me. I quickly checked my phone and was surprised to see no reception as well. It looks like we won't have anything to do till the network goes back online. Wanna grab lunch? I asked Kevin. We left Mark working in the station. Passed by Anna and Jeff's station and saw both of them heads down on their desk, fast asleep. Ronald wasn't in his cubicle. Maybe he went down to the food hall, I thought. Kevin made a quick trip to the bathroom while I waited in the 8th floor lobby, fiddling with my phone. After a few minutes, he got back. Ronald was inside the bathroom, coughing heavily, saying that he doesn't feel good. But he asked us to get him a coffee. Sure is a heavy drinker, huh? said Kevin. The elevator doors opened and we got in. We pressed the 2 button and 10 seconds later, we were in the food hall. On a busy day, the hall would be packed with people, especially during lunchtime. All the concessionaries would have lines at least 10 people at a time. Since it was a holiday, only the cafe was open. Only two baristas were present instead of the usual four people, and there was also no one dined in. I don't really like coffee from cafes because I find them too pricey. Kevin doesn't drink coffee. And thus we ordered a turkey sub instead, and Ronald's coffee. The barista wrote Ronald's name on the cup and told us that a new shipment of coffee beans had come in this morning. I haven't tried it yet, but according to my co-barista, it tasted amazing. It's the perfect shot of coffee for a sluggish holiday. We went on our way back to the office, bringing our takeout with us. We got to the 8th floor and dropped off Ronald's cup on his desk. We passed by Anna and Jeff's desk, but they weren't there. Maybe they went downstairs the same time that we went up, I told Kevin. We paid it no mind and just went back to our desk. We started eating our sandwiches and halfway through, we heard screaming. It was Mark. Help! What are you doing? Help! This got us to our feet and we ran to his station and we were shocked at the sight. It was Anna and Jeff ganging up on Mark. They were making horrific, guttural sounds while beating Mark up violently. They looked like wild animals on a frenzy. We were horrified, but we ran to Mark's aid. I held Anna, and while Kevin held Jeff, we pulled them back, but they shoved us away. They both went straight for Mark, and they bit his legs. Mark let out a gut-wrenching scream. "'What the heck are you doing?' exclaimed Mark. There was blood everywhere, and then we saw their eyes. Anna took a glimpse of me with bloodshot red eyes and blood drooling from her mouth. I beckoned Kevin to run as he was in shock as well. We were two meters away from the attack. Mark was already crying in pain as he tried to push the two away but to no avail. Anna was only five foot tall and Jeff was shorter too at only 5'3", but both of them had unbelievable strength to be able to push me and Kevin. We ran back looking for Ronald in the hope of assisting us. 
When we got to his desk, he was sitting there. Ronald, we need your help. Anna and Jeff are attacking Mark. Help us. We can't pull them back. They're too strong. Ronald, head resting on his desk, suddenly jolted up. We were horrified to see him having these same bloodshot eyes. He let out a guttural scream and he started for us. Kevin and I ran to these security doors, quickly badging my ID and then to open the door. And we got out and then closed it just before Ronald got to it. Poor Mark. He was trapped inside with the three zombie-like beings who used to be, Anna, Jeff, and Ronald. We made for the elevator quickly. It was the longest five seconds of our life. When the elevator doors opened, we got in and we mashed the G button to get to the lobby. We didn't utter a word. Kevin was usually a joker, but he couldn't make a joke out of this one. When the doors opened, we ran for the main doors, but to our surprise, Mr. Cruz, the guard, was sprawled on the floor bathed in his own blood and his body bullet-ridden. Both of the receptionists near the main door were also dead. From what we make of it, they were both shot. We were horrified at the sight. The smell of blood filling our nose. I was sick to my stomach. Please get back to your office and do not attempt to leave the building or you will be shot. The group of soldiers who accompanied the ambulance were still there. But this time, barricades were set up and they tripled the number. Again, please get back to your office. This is your last warning. We need help. Our colleague suddenly went berserk and attacked one of us. Please, we need your help. Shouted Kevin. And then three bangs. Bullets went through the thick lobby glass. Warning shots aimed at our feet. On the count of five, we will shoot if you don't get back. Let's go. These guys aren't kidding. Let's just go. I pulled Kevin's arm and we ran back to the elevator lobby. The emergency exit doors leading to the stairs were open. We went up to the second floor through the stairs. Still no signal. I think they got this building jammed. I think these soldiers were up to this, Kevin said. We decided to run to the food hall to get help. We went inside the cafe to ask for help. The two baristas were gone. We cautiously went inside to check if there was a working phone with a signal that we could use. Help. We heard a faint, muffled sound from behind the counter. We slowly peeked over the counter to check, and we were filled with horror at the sight. The barista who had entertained us earlier was being eaten by his partner. He was reaching his hand towards us to ask for help, but he was too weak to speak. The other barista was busy with what he was doing. We decided to run for our lives. Let's go to the bathroom and let's lock ourselves in, I suggested. There is a bathroom within the vicinity of the food hall. We heard guttural screaming from far away. It was impossible to tell which direction it came from, but we assume it was from the third floor, since there is an escalator directly going to the third floor from the second. We got to the bathroom, but the doors were locked. Let's take a chance and head for the third. It's the nearest one, said Kevin. Okay, let's go. We ran to the escalator and hoped that the third floor was empty. From the third floor, we could go into a public meeting room and figure what the heck was happening. The third floor was empty. We walked as quietly as we could for an empty public room. 
All the rooms were surrounded by glass walls so you could see from the outside. We picked the smallest one and the closest one to the escalator, just in case we needed to bolt out. We got in and we locked the door. We piled up everything inside the room to block the door. We were safe. God, I can't believe this is happening. Straight out of World War Z or something, I said. I think the military is behind this. Why were these soldiers already outside? Why were they hailing in the ambulance earlier? Why did Anna, Jeff, and Ronald turn to freaks and why didn't we? Why was the barista infected as well? Why did these soldiers shoot our guard and the receptionist? Why didn't they help us? Why jam our signals and why wouldn't they let us leave? Kevin was rambling on with a lot of questions which all made sense. I think it was the coffee. There was something in the coffee, I said. The coffee? Asked Kevin surprised. Think about it. The patient from earlier drank coffee at the cafe and then passed out. When I got to the 8th floor earlier, Anna and Jeff were on their way to get coffee. Ronald was already sipping his cup when I got in. The barista told us that his colleague tasted the newly arrived coffee. It's the coffee, I said. Kevin was silent. He took out his phone to check the signal but to no avail. I was at a loss for words. We were in a horror movie and we didn't know what to do. We were stuck. We were alone in a monolith with zombie-like beings and the people who were supposed to protect us kept us from leaving. We were as good as dead. Our army knows what the heck is going on. Why else would they be camped outside the building? I think they were in on this. They know what's happening. They definitely know. I was silent. I didn't know what to say. The gravity of the situation was dawning on me. I thought of my family. I thought of the regrets that I have. I should have gone to Iceland to see the Northern Lights. I should have gone to Thailand to taste all the delicacies. There are lots of things that I didn't do in this life. I lived like a robot. And now I'm going to die like a lab rat. The hours passed in silence. Both of us shocked at what's happening. My watch showed at 6pm. And then the freaking lights went off. No. Now our entire world has gone dark. Remarked Kevin. Our only lights were from outside the glass windows. It was 7pm when we heard the familiar guttural screaming. We were alert. We peered through the glass wall while hiding behind the overturned table that we used to block the door to check for movement outside. We couldn't see anything but darkness. The screams got closer, and so we ducked and hid and prayed that the creatures would pass us. We started hearing footsteps. Slow footsteps which meant they were close. We couldn't tell how many, but I think there were a lot of them. Knock, knock. Tap, tap. Knock. We heard them knocking on the door and tapping the glass. My heart was racing and I could tell Kevin's was too. And then we heard a loud crash on the right wall. It was behind Kevin. The faint light outside revealed five of the infected. They made it inside the meeting room adjacent to ours. They started banging on the glass wall protecting us from there. We needed to act quick. And then we heard banging on the door. There's another three of them on the door. We're locked in, shouted Kevin. I thought of what they would do in the movies. 
I turned the table upright and then got on top and then fell to the ceiling vent. Luckily, there was one. Help me with this one, I commanded him. He got up to the table and we managed to remove the vent. It was big enough for a person to fit in. I climbed in first after Kevin gave me a boost. I pulled him up just before the glass mirror broke and the infected got in. Just our luck. We crawled through the vent, not knowing where it would lead us. It was already 10pm when I had checked the watch. We were both thirsty and hungry. Luckily, our phones still had some juice and they were used for flashlights. We heard the familiar guttural sounds below us. I think they can track us, whispered Kevin. At this point, anything is possible. I did see Anna and Jeff with that group earlier, I told Kevin. How did they get out? He asked. They probably broke through the security door. These people aren't human anymore. Remember how easily they threw us off when we were pulling them away from Mark? I said. And then a sudden loud noise interrupted me from my train of thought. The sound came from behind me. Jeffrey, help! The ceiling fell! Kevin screamed. I looked behind and I tried to reach for him with my foot. I couldn't turn around because of the limited space inside the vent. And then I heard the horrific screaming. Jeffrey, hurry! They're coming! Kevin was frantic. I rushed to get back and extend my foot, so he would have something to grab onto, but I was too late. Kevin was screaming in pain, and then he fell from the ceiling. That was the last that I saw of him. I heard the guttural screams from below, and the sounds of horrible pain. I crawled faster, leaving my phone somewhere in the vent. I kept crawling and crawling without thinking of where I'll go. I turned left, I turned right, went straight and made another right. I kept crawling and crawling until I fell on a slope. I slid for a good 8 seconds before I hit a dead end. I was in pain. The fall was too much for me. I couldn't see myself because of the complete darkness surrounding me. I stayed in that vent for what I think was an hour. I decided to feel my surroundings. In front of me was the slope from where I came sliding from. I turned around and I found a grate that I pushed it hard until it opened. I fell outside from my last push, straight into an open dumpster. The trash cushioned my fall. I was outside. I peeked out of the dumpster to check my surroundings. There were no soldiers. There was no one around. I quickly got out and I ran like crazy away from the building. I was able to get to the park where a mass was being held. I sat on one of the benches and I tried to comprehend what had happened. And then I decided to go back home. I opened my home laptop and then searched for anything related to the events that had happened today. Nothing. There was nothing. Uh, was it a media blackout? A secret military or government operation? This is too much, I thought to myself. It was around 12am when I decided to run for my life. If this was a military operation, I would be in danger. I remembered my phone. If they found my phone, they'll be able to track me down. Good Friday. I got out of my apartment and rode a taxi to the bus terminal. It was already 12.30am. I was going to buy a ticket to the farthest province possible to get away. 
to hide. It was a covert military operation. I knew it. No one was supposed to survive. But I did. God help me. I'm a gladiator for the dark web. Written by Wendigo Roar. I woke up in a room with no windows, cinder black walls, and a solid metal door. The dim light was just enough to see the red stains on the walls. Parallel lines of dried brown red around the door looked like fingers that had dug for escape until the flesh had given way. I could feel my breathing become more harried as I studied this cell. My cell. What was I doing here? Everything was foggy. I could remember work yesterday, but then things got foggy. Glimpses of things. A chandelier. Music. Dark red wine in a glass. What was I forgetting? I closed my eyes tight, hoping that would help. But nothing more came to me. I opened them again when I heard footsteps outside the cell door. There is the sound of someone typing on a keypad outside of the room. I felt frozen. There was a hissing sound from above me. I looked up and saw that there were small valves in the corners of the ceiling. A lightly colored gas was shooting out of them. Hey, what the heck are you doing? Hey, I know you're out there. What is this gas? I hollered. The gas began filtering down, and I could feel myself getting woozy. Please, listen to me. Stop this. What's going on? I screamed. If the person outside my room had answered, I never heard it. The dizziness took over, and I collapsed on the floor. When I woke up again, it felt like my left arm was on fire. I looked over at it and nearly screamed. I had stitches on what looked like a surgical incision. In the area around the wound was red and swollen. Gingerly, I reached out with my right hand and I touched it. It was incredibly tender. There was some scabbing over the wound. What had they done to me? What the heck had they done to me? As I stared at my arm in horror, I heard footsteps returning to my door. In terror, I looked up at the gas nozzles again. This time, there was no sound typing on keys. Instead, with a loud squeak, a small flap on the bottom of my door had slipped open, and a tray of food was shoved through. I went over to it and I picked it up. Some grayish-brown sludge heaped up in one compartment of the tray. There was a hard roll and a mushy apple to go along with it. The hell is this? 
I said out loud. Need it or don't. A gravelly voice said from the other side of the door. I don't give two craps. You worthless. And with that, footsteps slowly moved away from my cell door. I spent what felt like days in the cell. I periodically got food. It never got better. My arm seemed to be slowly healing. It still hurt like crazy. But I did have unauthorized surgery. So that's hardly a surprise. One time, the gravelly voice that was attached to the footsteps outside my door asked if I wanted to get some fresh air. Please, I responded. Tough luck, he said, laughing. Idiot. Screw you, man, I screamed. I slammed on the metal door until my hands ate and my surgery scars began to ooze. The man laughed as he walked away. After four more meals had passed, I got gassed again. When I awoke, I was in a different room. One wall was all metal bars, with a door set into it. I started walking around to get my brain fully running again. And shortly after that, a large man with a beer belly and plenty of muscle walked up to the bars. Showtime, he said in the same gravelly voice that I had grown accustomed to hearing outside my cell door. What do you mean? I asked. In about ten minutes, you're going to leave this room and enter our little gladiator arena. You're going to perform for our friends watching via webcam over the dark web. They've all paid a fair chunk of money to watch this. In your left arm, we placed a device that works a fair bit like a taser. Whenever a signal is sent to it, it blasts a shock. It'll feel like this. He put his hand in his pocket, and the next thing I knew, all the nerves in my left arm were on fire. I screamed. It ended shortly afterwards, but I felt raw. The pain was unforgettable. It's a gladiator arena, so obviously you'll be fighting. If you choose not to fight, we will pulse that shocker in your arm every five minutes for the next three days. You'll beg us to end you. Also, if the viewers pay us a sizable donation... They get to shock you at a time of their choosing. Money has power. What kind of messed up stuff is this? The kind that makes us a lot of money. Other than being required to fight, there are no rules. You keep going until someone dies. Got it? I'm, I'm not fighting anyone, I said. My arm sizzled with radiating agony. Ah, I moaned as soon as the pain was over. You will be fighting. Now, take off your clothes. 
What? No clothes and no handholds. No secrets. No BS. You walk in with nothing, and you walk out with nothing. Now take them off, or else I'll fry your arm again. I couldn't handle another dose of that pain again just yet. So, I started undressing. Faster, the man growled. You are down to six minutes. If you're late, I fry your arm. I hustled, taking off shoes, socks, a shirt, and pants. I stood there in just my underwear. The guard looked at me. Seriously, I don't care if you're embarrassed. Let that thing swing in the breeze or I'll set your arm on fire. I pulled him off and I stood barren in my cell. Better, the man said. Walk to the front of the cell and turn your back to me. What? I was interrupted by a sharp blast of agony. I walked to the edge of the cell, put my back against the bars and hesitated. Do it now or get the pain, he said while putting on a glove. This is the cavity search to make sure there are no potential weapons hidden on you. If you move, I will finish this exam with a tire iron. It definitely wasn't enjoyable, but it was over soon enough. Stand up and turn around, he said. I saw that he was putting on a clean glove. Open your mouth, bite me, and I'll rip your jaw off. Don't test me. Flashlight in one hand. The man shone the light into my open mouth and poked around with his gloved hand, occasionally wiggling teeth to see if they were securely attached. No secrets. Alright, you're cleared. I'm going to unlock your door so you can head to the arena. You will walk in front of me, and I will guide you. You try anything, and I'll leave the arm zapper on. You clear? Uh, yeah, I gasped trying to shake off what had happened. Then step to the back of your room. He walked to the door, unlocked it with a set of keys on his belt, and then stepped away. Step out and turn right, he said. I followed the directions, and as I got more, I followed those too. Until I came to a large tub of something, that was thick and vaguely yellow. I felt a hard shove from behind and yelped as I was launched into the tub. It flooded around me like a thick, glowing bath. It wasn't deep, and as soon as I got my bearings, got my feet under me, and I stood up. I gasped, wiping the fluid from my face. I could hear my captor laughing. Oh, the look on your face, he said between chuckles. You idiot. What is this? It's some cheap olive oil, like the gladiators and the wrestlers it used to use. We didn't have time for you to apply it to yourself. So, I sped things up a bit. Don't like it. That don't take so long next time. 
Now, get down the hallway. That door opens on the arena. I walk down the hallway, feeling the fear building in my chest. The door was solid bands of wood with a thick metal handle on it. Open it and step through. I stepped out onto the sand. It was a small, circular arena, maybe the size of a bedroom, with high concrete walls enclosing the sandy fighting space. There were bench seats above the walls, and in each stood a small camera. My audience. I heard the door behind me shut, and with a grinding metallic thud, the lock engaged. I was trapped. On the other side of the arena, another door opened. A stick-thin man, shining from the olive oil on his skin. He was pushed through the door before it shut behind him and locked. He looked ancient, and he was unsteady on his feet. His skin was covered with age spots, and he had a slight tremor in his hands. This was who I was fighting. He walked over to me, and I noticed that he didn't have a surgery mark on his arm. What the heck? Look, old man, I don't want to hurt you, but I don't think I have much choice, I said. Screw you, he wheezed out. And then my arms lit up. It caught me off guard, and I fell to my knees. The pain let up after a second, just in time for me to look up and see a bony fist smack me directly in the eye. The old man wasn't as weak as he looked. I staggered and caught myself with my hand, and the old man took advantage of my paws with a firm kick to the stomach. Gasping for air, I rolled away from the old man. I got enough distance to stand back up. Looking over, I saw my opponent was looking a bit drained, but he was working his way over to me. What the heck, man? I said. I don't want to have to do this to you. Hesitation is for little pieces of crap, he said through panting breaths. Dude. Another shock, and I hit the ground this time. And that guy stomped me on my balls. Stomped. I screamed and I lashed out right as the pain in my arm turned off. I swiped his leg and he hit the ground. Something cracked, and it was his turn to scream. I jumped over to him and straddled him, raining down punches until he looked like pulp and he had stopped making noise. With a final blast of pain in my arm, I fell on the ground. This time, the pain didn't stop, and I felt myself about to pass out. I heard thunks and footsteps, and my jailer stood above me. Not bad for a freaking nugget, he said. 
Free me. I gasped through the pain. And then I passed out. I woke up back in my cell. There was a steak sitting on a plate next to me. With a note. Meet up. Round two is soon. All I could do was scream. Something sinister lurks in the woods. I have rules to survive it. Written by Mr. Mills 45. We've all heard it before. I was never a believer in the supernatural until X thing happened to me. Now I definitely know that without a doubt there are strange things in the world. And I'll take back what I said. I always believed in things beyond us, much more capable than the limitations put on humanity by this unforgiving universe. The things that go bump in the night, or come from the sky. The things that make you question the rules of reality. Sometimes it's fun to imagine what the world would be like if they were extremely abundant or made themselves more known to us. If we were even able to coexist with such forces. Being a middle-aged man, I always ponder the idea about humanity making peace with most beings of that nature, and them assisting us in our never-ending quest to advance ourselves as a species. All the possible ways it could progress and move us forward. My guy can dream, I guess. Because any person with a working mind knows that humans can barely get along with each other. And as to how we'd get along with not only ourselves but forces that we don't understand. I just don't think it would go the way an optimist would hope for. I live in a cabin outside the city, but nothing too crazy. Lord knows I lack the knowledge and the skill to farm. As to why someone like me would be motivated to move out into the woods to live by myself, if he believes in such things, is definitely a good question. Not all of it can be evil, right? And that question becomes even harder to answer after I tell you about my whole situation. Let's just say that it's kind of complicated. Terrifying as well, but mostly complicated. The forest that I live in, it doesn't belong to me. No, not even close. I would be an idiot to everything that it does. In fact, it doesn't belong to any of my, quote, neighbors who live out here. This forest belongs to peril. Of course, just saying that alone doesn't answer the dozens of potential questions that are probably running through your mind at the moment. So, allow me to explain. At least as best as I can. To start off, I have no idea what peril looks like. Anyone who actually gets a glimpse of his appearance ends up in a tree with their skin torn off. You heard that right. You want to know the details of Peril's appearance? You can. But the cost is being turned into a science classroom decoration. I simply gave the entity the name Peril because, well, that's what he signifies. If you know what he looks like, it means you have no more than about 30 seconds left to live. Less than half a minute before you end up as a piece of human licorice. The police have come out here before looking for these so-called missing people, after being hounded for so long by the locals in town to do so. Not that they try very hard to get to the bottom of it all. 
Let's just say Peril isn't a sloppy killer by any means. He knows how to cover his tracks well. The bodies don't stay hung up in the trees for very long. I don't tell them a dang thing, because I would rather not end up on Peril's bad side. But if you're going to come live out here, you're going to have to follow the rules. Unless you prefer being a piece of a Halloween showcase for a bit. And if you don't live here but you are still a big enough idiot to camp or hike in this area, I'll have a separate list for you. Do not print this list and bring it with you. Once you've read it, comprehended and understood it, you'll need to memorize it. You'll find out why in a second. Without further ado, here are the guidelines for those who want to live here and not die a horrific death. May God have mercy on you. And please note that sometimes rules may cross over or contradict. That's for a reason. Rule number one. Do not stay outside in the woods for more than three hours at a time. Be prepared and bring a way to keep track of the time. This rule does not apply to those who do not live here. Rule number two. When outside roaming the woods, if you hear the sound of four twigs or branches snapping in a row, immediately look at the ground and nowhere else. Continue doing this for three minutes, no more, no less. Count if need be. Rule number three. If you come across skinned human bodies hanging from any tree, do not scream. React strongly or try to report it. Trust me when I say that, you don't want to end up like the idiots who've called the police in the past. And for the love of God, do not try to take a picture or a video. Simply acknowledge the bodies casually and move on. It seems like a tall order, I know, but the alternative has been made clear. Rule number four. If the police do arrive and question you about anything strange or dangerous going on in the woods, simply play dumb. Tell them that you're just going about your business and you will let them know if you see anything weirder out of place. Rule number five. If you're inside your cabin and get the overwhelming sense of a presence outside at any point, do not look out any of the windows or exit the cabin. Rule number six. Try to make an attempt to keep your property clean and neat on a regular basis. Peril seems to go for more unkempt areas of the woods. However, this does not fully guarantee your safety, so don't count on it completely. Rule number seven. Do not attempt to warn others about peril, especially if they are already a marked target. That just makes it ten times worse for everyone involved. Okay, now that the rules for the folks who are brave enough to come live here are out of the way, let's get onto the rules for campers, hikers, and those who are only going to be here temporarily. Rule number one. Before entering the woods, make sure you're wearing at least one piece of jewelry. Think of this as a sort of a shield. You wouldn't try to enter a military base without clearance, would you? It's kind of like that. It doesn't have to have any sort of religious meaning or spell on it. Rule number two. If you're going to use profanity while in the woods, do not direct it toward any of the wild or plant life. Only may you do this toward other human beings. Sound too difficult for you? Then stay out. Rule number three. And this mainly applies to campers specifically during the night. You may hear the chilling screams of those who were unfortunate enough to fall victim to peril. 
Do not attempt to follow the screams or help the victims. It is too late for them, and you'll be next if you attempt to intervene. Bring all the guns that you want and see what happens. I dare you. Rule number four. Another one for campers. If you wake up in the middle of the night and hear either rustling in the trees or faint singing in the distance, do not exit the campsite if this occurs. It could go on for several hours, so be prepared to adapt to these circumstances if you're unlucky enough for this to happen. Stay near the fire and keep your noise level low. Rule number five. Keep the landscape intact. Do not rip up grass, snap branches off trees, dig holes, or kill any of the wildlife. Specifically that last one. That's a one-way ticket with peril. This rule does not apply to those who live here when they're just cleaning up their property. But hunting is illegal here anyway, so keep your guns at home. Now that those are squared away, I would just like to continue by saying that there may be more rules that I have not yet figured out. And although I do not want to take the risk of going out there and figuring them out, I'll add them to either list if anything comes up. Another question that you may or may not have is, well, if you're not supposed to warn people about peril, then why are you posting this online? Which isn't a dumb thing to ask. And to that, my dear reader, I will say it is simply because I am outside of the woods, out of peril's reach. I bring my laptop and only type this document up when I'm inside the internet cafe over in town. As long as you do not warn others while inside the woods themselves, you should be okay. I've done this multiple times and I'm still kicking. But I seem to be the only person who has actually had the intuition to figure this out. At least so far, hopefully. This reaches some motivated people. It's gonna take more than just a few cops to solve this. Believe me when I say that, I've tried calling them before while outside of the woods. The dispatcher wasn't pleased. Her exact quote being, Please call someone else about your ghost story, sir. You're wasting valuable time. I guess this missing person case just went over their head. Either that or they don't care enough. You can take a wild guess as to which it is. Spoiler alert, it rhymes with Wath. I've seen and observed people who have come out here, campers and hikers alike. People who have no idea what they're getting themselves into when they arrive. It can be a sad thing to watch, but that's just the reality of the situation. Oh, and before you ask why it is I haven't moved out, I honestly don't really have a good reason. I can continue to live my life pretty much normally as long as I follow the rules, even though I use the term normally loosely. I do, however, have a couple of short pieces about those who are not as fortunate as I. About the folks who were either stupid, lacked common sense, or were simply ignorant. Sometimes all the above. Not that they deserved death so horrible. Take victim one, for example, a group of teenage boys, no older than 16 years old from first glance. Poor kids. Anyway, this ill-fated group of friends had come out here during a camping trip, and as you can imagine, they were being way too loud, disrespecting all the wildlife and nature around them. One of those young idiots even threw a rock at a squirrel in a tree and it hit him. The squirrel fell out of the tree and it died as a result. Naturally, this caught the attention of peril. You can infer what came next. 
I was unaware of what had gone down up to this point, and I had left the house to go for a short walk, making sure to be back within the three-hour time frame, of course. I do know that it was sometime in the morning. So there I am, simply strolling along the trees and path until I come to a small clearing. A clearing that was quite the popular campsite around here, but still a decent distance from my cabin. It was mainly for the adrenaline junkie types who love to test their luck by going to camp out in supposedly haunted places. And then I smell it. That unforgiving stench of iron and immediately my heart sinks. I approach closer to the clearing and try to see what the damage is this time around. Don't get me wrong when I say that there is a fine line between bravery and stupidity. I think that I might have broken it. I go slowly, trying to be elegant enough not to snap too many twigs or break any branches, wanting to make sure that no matter what, I don't do anything to upset Peril, because he could be watching me at any time, anywhere in these woods. I make it close enough to the clearing to see the truly sickening sight in front of me, enough to make those with even the strongest of stomachs buckle underneath pure and utter disgust. Along three different trees, hung each of these six boys upside down, nothing remaining but muscle tissue and bone. There is no blood on the ground below any of their bodies, though. Like I said, Peril knows how to clean up. No, and it's not meant to be funny. But nonetheless, it was just as heart-shattering as it was horrifying to look at. To be optimistic, though, at least it was me instead of their parents that had to see it. I wish that I could tell them the truth, but when they inevitably come searching for their lost children out here, they'll be in danger. They have to be careful, but grieving parents aren't careful, and for good reason. Trust me when I say I used every single ounce of my strength to keep my vomit inside of me. I'm not going to barf on a tree or a bush and risk it. How did I know they were teenagers if they were so beat up, you might ask? Well, that's because one of their phones had been lying on the ground near the tents. Surprisingly, you can get signal out here, but don't try anything slick. Trust me, he'll know. On the screen, I read a text from what I assumed to be one of their mothers. Here's what it said. Enjoy your birthday trip with your buddies, Mikey. Live it up and have the best 15th ever. Your dad and I will be there to pick you up in case you need it. Just give us a call. It legitimately brought a tear to my eye. But what the heck was I going to do about it? Pretty much next to nothing. And that's what always got to me the most. I was nothing more than a reporter when it came to this. If I could do more, I would. I knew at the time that Para would be back soon to retrieve the bodies and clean up what was left of his kill. One person had seen it and that was enough for him. I think that's how he works. But I'm not going to pretend to know everything about a being whose basic appearance is a mystery to me. Let alone his twisted, dark, and convoluted reasons for why he does these things. Just to follow the rules and stay alive is my motto. After staring at these sight for several minutes longer, I went back home to my cabin. When the police inevitably came around asking questions about the missing boys, I played dumb to follow my own protocol. Only mentioning the fact that 
I thought that I had heard some teenagers and nothing further. I could have sworn neither of them even had the notepad ready to write down what I might have said. Figures. Getting off topic, especially now that I've had some time to think about it, I now have the true reason I haven't left this place in the dust. Why I haven't just gotten a plane ticket and flown to the polar opposite side of the planet. There's a small part of me that enjoys living here. Now, please don't take that as me being some depraved sadist or anything. It's not that at all. With the combination of coming up with the rules and figuring out how peril works, it makes me feel important, like I have a purpose. It definitely beats just sitting at a desk job all day, only to go home to some crappy apartment, which I'll probably end up dying in out of sheer boredom and lack of drive to do anything else. In a way, I am saving lives to the best of my ability. There is a small part of me that feels as if this is definitely going to come back to bite me in the butt sooner or later. But at least I'm making a bigger effort than anyone else who lives in these woods. As well as local law enforcement. But you understand that by now. Trust me, I want to spill my guts to the whole world. I want to warn every single person who pulls up to the entrance of the path to turn back immediately. But that would only mean their death and mine as well. This is truly my best option and only one. Moving on. The second victim that I had ever come across was a 30-year-old woman by the name of Pia Dunley. Pia had supposedly come here to hike along the trail. Just something as simple and quiet. There was only one problem. Well, one other than coming here in the first place. That she had decided to do it at night. Now as to why someone thinks an idea like that is a good one is troubling, but I do give her the benefit of the doubt though. You think the missing person cases popping up would deter her? Apparently not. Maybe she just didn't do her research beforehand. Pia goes on to her little night hike, starting at the entrance and making it about half a mile deep into the woods, pretty much to about where I live, which is an important detail by the way. Now, although Pia is not alive for me to ask her what she had experienced, I know for a fact that a scream had woken me up in the middle of the night. A deafening shriek of desperation and terror, obviously coming from her. I just laid there in bed, listening to her wail and cry. It didn't last very long though, only about 10 seconds. But something like that must have felt like minutes, and to her, probably hours. I just couldn't move. I didn't exactly cry or shake in horror. No. I just laid there staring at the wall of my bedroom as the events unfolded not far from outside of my cabin. You ever find certain death scenes in movies hard to watch? You know, the long, drawn-out kills where the victim is screaming bloody murder as they're being brutally murdered by some deranged psychopath. Well... That's nothing in comparison to this. Not even close. I just felt like a complete and utter coward during the whole ordeal. Everyone has flaws, right? Well, in that moment, I felt like I was made up of nothing but flaws. But I knew trying to help would only make things worse. I just had to lay there, stay put, and listen to the woman die one of those most horrible deaths possible. I want to tell others the loophole to informing people about peril. 
but I never see them outside of the woods nor do I have their information. The ones that I have didn't want anything to do with it. And by that, I mean the people who live with me. They don't want to risk their own lives. After what I just told you, you're probably thinking it's majorly hypocritical for me to criticize the others for not helping. I don't blame you, because it kind of is. The Pia incident wasn't the only time I was awake during that night. Not far from it. Last night, in fact, I was jerked awake by the sound of branches snapping. It couldn't have been more than a dozen feet away. My eyes widened and my blood began to freeze. The pattern of the snapping drew itself closer to my cabin. No crickets, owls, or anything else was there to go with it. Just the eerie silence of the night. The rapid snaps began heading toward the back door of the cabin. I genuinely wished that I could describe the trembling of my body when I had heard that. It's that feeling you get as a child when you have to take a trip down into the basement by yourself. Now obviously, I didn't dare look out the window. Because at the time, I thought there was only a small chance that I was going to live. And taking a peek at my mystery supernatural murderer would only finish the job. Better safe than sorry. But when I heard the pounding echo of an unnaturally enhanced female voice behind me, something that even the best audio editing technology would have a hard time creating, that's when I truly thought that I would soon meet the Lord himself. And that peril wasn't the only thing out here to worry about. Keep quiet or it'll hear you. I turned, my fists up in a boxer stance as I expected to be attacked by the unknown entity. When I laid my eyes on the thing in front of me, my jaw swiftly plummeted straight to my shoes. Everything in my body seemed to seize, but yet my mind was running a mile a minute. In front of me was Pia Dunley, but not her living body. Instead, it was her ghost. There she was, levitating a few inches off the ground. But that's not even mentioning the fact that I could quite literally see through her as well. Like she was a hologram from a generic sci-fi movie. Thankfully, she also had her skin back on, or whatever you could call it in this context. One of my initial thoughts was to scream at her for warning me about peril. But then I remembered that it was unlikely he would try and kill someone that was already dead. But I was still vulnerable. Thank God I wasn't a marked target at the time. That was the only thing saving me. I know you probably have a lot of questions, she said softly, bringing down her volume greatly. Yeah, we're way past just questions. I replied, taking a couple of steps back. The room's sudden temperature drop getting to me as we conversed. I could feel goosebumps forming all over the surface of my skin. I was never a person who did well with the cold. What about apologies? She followed up. You know letting that thing kill me while you slept safely in your bed. You have no idea what it's like to have your skin torn off while you're still alive. While you can still feel it. Every little nerve ending on fire. I would argue with every single one of the damned souls in hell that it's worse than burning. Granted, I know there wasn't much you could have done on your own, she said, lightening her tone. How did you know that I was sleeping safely in my bed? I asked, to which Pia seemed offended at the fact that that was my main concern. 
which admittedly was pretty insensitive. In the split few seconds between being snatched up and then being stripped like dead skin off someone's crusty bottom lip, I saw you through your window. I saw your eyes open. You were just laying there, staring off into space. Did you come back to haunt me? I shot back. To make me pay for what I did, or lack of doing anything. What did you even expect me to do? I'm not some freaking superhero. No, none of that. But maybe I should. She pauses briefly. I'm here to help you expose this thing. That thing. We need to let the world know what's going on here. I paused. A question brewing in me. But not just that. Excitement as well. And a little bit of relief if I'm being totally honest. Where are all the, uh, well, ghosts of the others? The victims of peril? Is that what you call them? She chuckled, holding a ghostly hand up to her mouth. It's easier than saying the thing all the time, don't you think? I countered. Well, I actually like that movie a lot, so it's 50-50. All right, all right, enough, I commanded. How do you even plan to stop Peril? You don't even live here. I know way more about him than you. I need you to be careful with how and what you say, or I'm dead too. I said expose, not stop. But if we find a way to do so, then we will. And calm down, I literally just said that I wanted to help you. She punctuated, giving me an unimpressed glance. Uh, so sorry, I apologized. I'm just really on edge about all this. Yeah, I can kind of tell. Pia mutters. Then, she suddenly levitated over in my direction. The temperature of the room plummeted even further than before as she approached me. Like I had just stepped inside a meat freezer. What are you doing? I inquired, licking my lips awkwardly. I'm going outside to look for peril. She replied without turning around, making sure that he's not close. It doesn't matter how close he is. If you're in these woods, he can get to you. He knows that I'm here and that I'm in this cabin right now. As long as I follow the rules, he won't touch me. But that doesn't mean he won't taunt me. The rules? She asked, stopping her movement and doing a 180. We lock eyes and I adjust my posture as I feel my answer rise in my throat. Yeah, the rules, I said. Dashing over to my nightstand next to my bed and pulling out the top drawer. It creaks softly as dust disperses itself off the top shelf from the forest. Don't you think it's kind of weird to stay here making these rules instead of just moving away? She proposed, crossing her arms to punctuate. Well, considering that I'm talking to a ghost right now, no, it's really not that weird. Plus, I need to learn all that I can. I can't really do that from a distance in this situation. I responded casually, unbothered by her sarcasm. Also, if we're not supposed to warn others about peril in these woods, aren't the rules technically you warning others? Well, sort of. I've been posting them online far away from the perimeter of the woods. Talking to you about them wouldn't matter. He can't kill you twice. And since they're written by me, I'm all good. I can't warn myself. But still, watch what you say. Okay, she postulates. Well, that ugly son of a gun isn't all-knowing or very good-looking. 
If anything, his face kind of reminds me of. I jumped and snapped my head back in attention. My eyes crazed with worry. Shut up. Don't say anything further. Don't describe his appearance to me. I can't afford the risk. Let me guess. I can't tell you what he looks like either. Pia grills. Instead of replying, I hatch an idea. Withdrawing the rule sheets from my nightstand in a hasty effort, I march over to Pia, handing her the two lists. She gives me an odd glance and then scans them over. The aura from her spiritual figure surrounding the material. It seemed that she could pick and choose what solid object she wanted to interact with. Here, and you just reminded me that I should make another rule for each sheet. I told her without much flair. And that is... I went to the opposite side of my nightstand over to my admittedly small desk. Retrieving a pen and the clutter of papers and items that were scattered around its dusty oak surface. Everything from worn out pencils to overused paper clips. But immediately before touching the pen to the paper, I remembered how dangerous it would be to write this rule down while still inside the woods. I wasn't exactly sure if this would somehow alert peril in any way, but I didn't want to take the chance. Dang it, I cursed. I can't write it down in here. Gotta wait until I can leave the woods. It's too much of a risk. Wait, but I thought it wouldn't matter because you're technically not warning anyone. Pia proclaims. Listen, I'm still figuring all this out. I just don't want to take any risks. I've never written any rules down in the woods before. And unlike you, I still have about half my life left. I paused, comprehending what had just come out of my mouth. My bad, I didn't mean that. Pia simply rolled her eyes in response, displaying that she didn't have time to scold my unintentional slight. Listen, everything else aside, we don't have time to sit here and be petty all day. People are out there not only losing their lives, the lives of their loved ones and they don't even know it. We're the only two, well, people that are able and willing to help. I nodded at her short speech, but she was right. I had the knowledge and research and she had the abilities and experience. It felt great to finally have someone who wanted to get this out there as much as I did. I didn't have to do it alone anymore. Why exactly do you want to help me so much? I asked, genuinely curious for the answer. I have a son, an adopted son. She began hesitantly. Right now he's 17 and he's a great kid, very athletic and he loves the outdoors. He's been into sports since he could walk. I'm mainly proud that he gets good grades. Anyway, he wanted to come hike through these particular woods and stay out here for three days as a challenge. Soon enough, he'll be turning 18, which means his current guardian will no longer have any control over him, and he'll come to these woods. I don't want him to end up like me or any of the others. We can't let it happen. I won't let it happen. My head hung low as I approached Pia, considering placing a hand on her shoulder before realizing the obvious. I'm sorry. Too many innocent people have been lost to him. I promise I will make sure your son makes it. I announced sympathetically. Whatever it takes. He's blood to me. I hate thinking about what his birth parents did to him. Those pieces of crap. We need to solve this problem and we need to do it soon. 
Are you able to come with me to the cafe? I probed. I'm guessing no one else would be able to see you. No, I'm stuck within the range of the woods, similar to peril. But I know how we can talk to each other outside of here. How? She paused, her look of utter sorrow and sadness shifting into one of playful mischief. I'm guessing you heard of a Ouija board before. I raised an eyebrow, feeling the usual wrinkles form on my forehead as it was lifted. Don't you have to be someone close to me for that to work? Plus, it takes multiple people. I came back. I'm not even really sure that it's worth it. For a man who claims to have such faith, you think of these supernatural in far too simple terms. It only takes multiple people if there's no spirits to communicate with, and you're just trying to scare friends at a party. Trust me, it's a good backup option in case we need to talk when you're not here. I used to mess with them all the time with my friend group in high school. Most spirits just don't care about ordinary people. And just as Pia had earlier, I rolled my eyes. But it wasn't because I was proven wrong, no. She definitely made a valid point. She was just pretty smug about it. But hey, it's not like I was all that much better. I got next to no sleep that following night. The traffic of thoughts in my brain were far too heavy for me to hit the sack until it was too late. On the flip side, I probably would have had nightmares anyway if I did. So, I'm not really sure what to make of it. In the morning that followed, I took a detour on my way to the cafe in town to a Walmart to pick up a Ouija board. There is a whole shelf dedicated to different types. I had no idea what truly made the difference in each, though. I simply chose the most generic-looking one. As to why Walmart lets these things on its shelf, it's questionable. With little time to sit there thinking too much about it, I grabbed it off the rack, brought it to the checkout line along with a couple of pints of Ben & Jerry's, mainly just so I didn't look too odd, but also because I needed something to lift my spirits a bit. Things like this often weigh heavily, and ice cream helps everyone feel better. After that was taken care of, I headed over to my next stop, the cafe. Being careful enough to double-check that, I brought the rule sheets with me. But I also had digital copies on my laptop. So, even if I did lose them, it wouldn't be too disastrous. But the person who found them and walked into the woods with them, however, well, you all know that what would happen. So, maybe I was lowballing a bit. Although, if they wrote their own rules outside the area, they'd be fine. Provided they didn't show anyone else inside the woods. Nonetheless, I got to work writing down the new rule on each sheet, starting with the one for those living there. Hopefully all of you can spread this message around when it's uploaded, but whatever you do, don't print physical copies and enter the forest with them. Let's be honest, if any important people actually see this, we'll all be written off as nothing but conspiracy-loving nutcases. It's up to us, the people, to fight this issue. I retrieved my pen, pulled on my rule sheets, and swiftly began my task, letting the pen glide over the paper. Rule number eight. If you fall victim to peril and your spirit roams the woods, do not describe his appearance to those that are still alive. You will obviously be unaffected, but they can still be harmed. 
What's that you got there? Came a light, feminine voice. One that you would expect a younger mother to use with her newborn. I snapped my head around. A lady, which I'd assumed to be the waitress, was standing there, with a hot pot of coffee in one hand, looking at me curiously, amused by my sloppy handwriting. Oh, sorry, just a work thing. I lied, quickly flipping my rule sheets over to the blank side, not wanting her thinking that I was even weirder than what she most likely already assumed. I also tucked the Ouija board next to me, trying to set it to my right side in the booth. It probably wasn't the best idea to bring it here now that I thought about it. Well, you've been working too hard and you haven't ordered anything. Is there anything I can get you? She quizzed politely. She motioned to the coffee pot. She must have been new because I hadn't seen her in her before. I shuffled my hands around, picking up the menu and quickly opening it up, only scanning it for a few seconds, kidding myself like I was actually going to get something other than my usual. Uh, can I just get the bacon and eggs with a large coffee, please? I requested, failing to hide the haste in my voice. She smiled writing down my simple order onto a notepad. I'm Sarah, by the way, she tells me, but instead of turning around, she just stood there, her friendly grin quickly fading. I froze, and not just out of a slight discomfort. The temperature in the room had dropped, and my goosebumps had emerged. At first, I just assumed that Pia had found a way to leave the woods and come here, but when I looked around the cafe, she was nowhere in sight. Are you okay? I asked with hesitance in my voice, gripping the side of my booth as I moved back a bit. Once again, her frown only increased. Her eyes widened, not comically, but more than enough to come off as unsettling. I subtly inched myself closer to the opposite side of the booth, and as I scooched over, she kept herself still, motionless. No one else in the cafe seemed to notice the strange phenomena. They all went on about their business, meaning the issue was mine and mine alone. Sarah approaches closer, leaning forward. I can smell the stench of her perfume as each millisecond passes, those crazed eyes being locked on mine. You best be careful. You're not as nearly as smart as you think. I'll be watching you. Every single move that you make, all it takes is one fatal slip-up and I will tear every ounce of flesh from your bones while you scream for death to grip a hold of you. Don't think I'm oblivious to what you're trying to do. The forest is mine and always will be. Her voice never changed as she said it, not even a little. It was that same sweet, welcoming tone as before. And that's what made it all the more terrifying. Sarah, what the hell are you doing? Shouted a more masculine voice further off from behind her. She immediately snapped to attention. The ruthless frowning faded and transforming her back into the warm smile from before. She darted her eyes around for a second as if she was confused beyond belief. Dumbfounded like someone with amnesia regaining a key memory. Uh, coming, she responded turning around and marching toward the kitchen. A man who I assumed to be the head chef, standing outside the door to it with an irate look in his face. 
and stop screwing around and help me make sure that we get these orders finished. He erupted, gesturing her into the kitchen with his left hand. What are we even paying you for? He continues shouting, the door shutting behind him as he follows Sarah into the kitchen, presumably to scold her further. I made a mental note in my head to tip her extra when I left. As for what was going through my head, I was mainly considering dropping everything to go get a cross and some holy water. But from what I've seen and heard from so many others, it sounds like quite the gamble with too low of a chance of actually working. Worth the effort, probably not. Don't get me wrong, I knew that little event was the work of peril. He was warning me. He knew what I was doing. But since I technically hadn't broken the rules, he couldn't go in for the kill. So, I was safe for now. It appears that I was slightly wrong about what I said before. He can influence things outside of the woods, but not drastically. That didn't mean my heart wasn't beating a mile a minute though. Once my food got to me, I scarfed it down as fast as I could, not wanting to take my sweet time and stay here any longer. Peril was eager at the opportunity to make me his next victim, and here I was thinking he may be, just maybe, the guy at a soft spot for me. Figures. I began stress eating the Ben and Jerry's that I had gotten earlier on my way back home. I also didn't bother opening the Ouija board, a total waste of money by the way but the Ben & Jerry's was a nice little dessert. I parked my car outside the entrance to the woods, grabbed everything inside the truck, and began to march over to the tree line in order to hike to my cabin. Aggressively gripping the Ouija board case in a showcase of my frustration with its futility. Understandably, I was on ten times higher alert than normal. I'm sure some Joe Bob type is going to be screaming for me to bring a gun, and try to shoot the reality-altering entity to death. As soon as I was past the tree line, all the sounds of nature had ceased, being replaced with nothing but leaves crunching beneath my feet, and the wind passing by. That's never a good sign. Birds were always making noise around here. This silence itself was the furthest thing from relaxing. This was the bone-chilling, wrong kind of silence, the silence of a predator stalking its prey, far from soothing in any way. I still pressed on, attempting to whistle in order to give myself some semblance of comfort. It's shocking how much humans rely on sound to stay sane. Like most of my efforts involving these woods, it was all in vain, especially when I heard the first twig snap from behind, and the second, this time far more forcefully, I knew what was coming, who was coming. As the third branch snapped, I quickly thought back to rule number two. It was the one that I had spent the most time memorizing, as it was the most likely one to pop up. Rule number two. When outside roaming the woods, if you hear the sound of four twigs or branches snapping in a row, immediately look at the ground and nowhere else. Continue doing this for three minutes. No more, no less. Count if need be. I darted my eyes to the ground as the fourth branch had snapped. It was almost like I could feel peril breathing down my neck, despite the fact that I didn't hear anything after the branches had finished breaking. But I knew that he was there, desperately wanting me to mess up, 
not being able to look almost felt worse than seeing him. Having no idea about the form this monstrosity took. Counting to 180 already seems like a chore. But imagine having to do it while death is quite literally standing behind you. Only then does it seem appropriate to complain. Every second was a century. Time seemed to have slowed down. I was honestly wondering if, given these circumstances, that was actually the case. Nothing felt more strenuous than this. The threat of my doom so close, so tangible. All it takes is one glance, one peek, and I die. I can smell your trembles, your terror. Peril says in a voice so low, so scratchy, it could only have been concocted by Lucifer himself. Its base alone makes my hand shake vigorously as I fought to focus on my counting. I shall take the skin of every man, every woman, and every child who steps foot in these trees. It's almost like I could feel my legs turn to jelly as he spoke, and I was only a hundred seconds deep into my count. Nearly another minute and a half left to go. You are so desperate it's amusing. Your skin will be mine one day. Your worthless rules will only keep you alive for so long. Why don't you invite a relative over? Sit him down, have a drink, and warn them about me. Go ahead. I dare you. I bet they would be dying to know my true form. Just as you are. You pathetic, inferior being. His tone was colder than the temperature of my blood during the encounter. Despite his self-proclaimed amusement, he didn't laugh, cackle, or let out some villainous chuckle. He just silently enjoyed my anguish. If he possessed a middle finger, he was definitely giving it to me right then and there. I only had 20 seconds left to go. Soon, this would end. It would be all over and I could continue walking back to my cabin. It's always the boys who scream the loudest when I take their flesh, Peril added. The boys and the men, they bellow out far louder than any woman ever could, crying for their mothers as they tear their tissue away inch by inch and make them watch me slowly peel their soft, delicate skin from their bones. The way that he described it, the way the words left him, it was so casual, so nonchalant, he might as well have been describing the process of making a PB&J. The worst part was the mental images in my head as he said it. Describing the way his victims begged for the mercy of death as he ripped their skin away. The way they kicked, screamed, and tried to fight. He wanted me to know every little detail. But the universe had been feeling generous. The grueling and horrendously torturous 20 seconds has ended and I looked back up, exhaling an extended sigh of relief. I could feel the adrenaline itself leaving my system, but not very quickly. If I was going to keep doing this, I needed to be clever. He knew what I was trying to accomplish, and he was clearly aware that I was using loopholes. But I couldn't let this taunting stop me. He wanted to break me to force me to give myself up, to get inside my own head and make sure that I created a situation for my own demise. I pointlessly tried to shake the existential dread filling my lungs as I hiked forward through the trees.
every single fight or flight alarm bell in my body going off all at once. I was starting to think these rules may not be enough, that my efforts were futile and did nothing but. Who was I truly saving? Was I really going to expect people to read them online and memorize them if they possibly come here? What if I had messed up somewhere along the road and then became responsible for someone's death? Maintaining optimism in situations like this are extremely difficult because once you start asking yourself questions like that, the questions that make you want to give up, it hits hard. However, as I said before, nothing comes without resistance. Even if resistance in this case is a sadistic cryptid who wants to give me a slow, agonizing death. I soon arrived back at the cabin, looking up to see Pia standing in the second floor window, the light passing through her hollow structure. It was pretty ominous if I was being truthful, like something you would see out of Poltergeist. If it were anyone else's ghost, I would have turned to tail right then and there. This place already gave me enough to deal with as is. I approached the front door, lifting my hand to grab the knob when the door had suddenly swung back inward, as if being opened from the inside, creaking weakly as it shifted. You like it? I heard Pia's voice enter my ears from behind. I just learned how to do that today. I jumped and spun around, laying my eyes on the sides of Pia casually levitating behind me. A friendly smile plastered on her face as we both looked at each other. Her face joyful and mine scrunched up. I also learned how to teleport small distances. Maybe being dead isn't so bad. I wish I had cool ghost powers. I respond, stepping into the cabin. My mouth dry from the stress of the earlier events. Well, if you mess up, then you will. Came her sarcastic rebuttal. As I've heard... I came back, fighting a comical smile. Despite what had all gone on, I found myself holding in a laugh at a quip. Oh, screw it. I let myself actually laugh. It was beyond therapeutic, something I was in desperate need of. And to finally have it was extremely cathartic. In that moment, I felt like a person again. Not just some machine overanalyzing everything in my path. As my fit of joy begins to die down, Pia takes advantage of the situation. You know, you still owe me that apology, right? She asks, crossing her arms as I stare past her phantom body. Hey, make sure you don't get any ectoplasm on my floor, I replied, dodging the question as I begin to walk upstairs. Pia simply teleports in front of me. I attempt to keep moving, but am suddenly stopped dead in my tracks. Nothing I do works to move me in any direction, and I try my hardest to fight it, but to no avail. What? What did you do? I demanded, now genuinely frustrated. Come on now, this isn't the time to be fooling around. Basic telekinesis, she fires back. Now, are you going to give me my apology or what? I already said that I'm sorry, I groan. Still trying to get myself out of her hold. No. You said you were sorry because I was talking about my son. Not because you lay there peacefully doing nothing while I was torn apart. You said yourself that there was nothing I could have done. I shot in return. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I don't want the satisfaction. She announces, smiling playfully. 
I curl my lips into feet, darting my eyes between Pia and the wall next to us, knowing that I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Of course, she didn't have any malintent, nor was she causing me any actual pain. It was mostly a huge inconvenience. Is a forced apology really an apology? I say softly, using wordplay in an attempt to escape. You're telling me your mom never made you apologize as a child for something stupid that you did, she quizzes. Another good point. An argument that I was unable to come up with a counter to on the spot. So I just gave in. It wasn't like it was a huge deal overall. Alright, alright, I groaned. I'm sorry, truly. I know I sound sincere, but I am. I can't imagine the suffering that you had to endure. Now, would you put me down? That's good, she cheers, releasing her hold on me. I end up having to catch myself, nearly slipping on the steps and falling over. I'm glad you're satisfied. I have some work to do now, so if you'll excuse me, I trail off, moving to the side of these steps to continue walking. I finish my journey up the stairs and I head into my room, spreading my rule sheets out over my bed and examining them, being sure to double check what needed to be done. Coming into the cabin, I did notice that it was starting to get quite messy around my front porch, which I had moved up to being a first priority, easily recalling which rule it had applied to. Rule number six. Try to make an attempt to keep your property clean and neat on a regular basis. Peril seems to go for more unkempt areas of the woods. However, this does not fully guarantee your safety, so don't count on it completely. Like it says, it's not a complete guarantee, but you gotta do everything you can, right? And that's what I keep telling myself at this point. This time, I was hesitant to step out of the cabin. I didn't feel the strong presence of Peril while I was inside. So, I was able to step out without breaking rule number 5. Furthermore, I didn't know that he had his eye on me. I wasn't marked, but I was totally aware he wanted me to be. He was lying in wait, sitting back comfortably, as he let the time pass for me to make a wrong move. I initially assumed it was because so far, I was the greatest threat to his cryptic nature, that I have the most information on him more than anyone else. Other than his appearance, of course. But who knew what all I was missing? It almost flattered me that he was threatened by my scheming. Not that I would say it to his face. Nonetheless, I did jokingly ask Pia if she could use her telekinesis to help me clean up outside. She, of course, declined, saying that I needed to keep taking care of myself. Once again, a fair point. Integrity and independence are things that we all need in life. I brought a rake, got to work on some leaves sprawled out on my lawn, picked up all sorts of broken branches and twigs spread out across the grass, as well as making sure that I had dusted off my front deck, which I was glad that I did. It was starting to look like it had snowed all over it. While cleaning and doing nothing but minding my business, I picked up a repetitive whipping and whooshing sound, a sound most people are familiar with if you watch a lot of action movies. Looking up, there was the source. A helicopter that had been flying past the area, wanting to know what it might have been about. 
I stopped what I was doing and moved where the trees were slightly less dense, especially since it sounded really close, flying much lower than helicopters usually do. That's only a hundred or so feet above the trees was the supposed chopper, completely black in its color. But that wasn't the only thing. It was outfitted with machine guns at the front, as well as a couple of missile launchers. Being a military-grade vehicle, it was definitely built for combat. That much was obvious. But what really caught my attention was the people inside it. Geared up with body armor, fully automatic weapons, and night vision goggles to their sides were these. Soldiers? I didn't have a clue as to what to call them. They didn't look like any military personnel that I had ever seen or recognized, not in the slightest. They appeared like there was something much more private. Shady. I looked for any symbols on their chopper or gear, but I didn't spy anything. Not before they were out of range. Had my posts online caught their attention? Were they in some sort of weird government faction sent in to deal with peril? I doubt it. As much as I would hope the government would do me a solid, this is the real world. That only happens in fiction. I continued cleaning up my property. It was difficult to focus after what I had seen. So many questions that I know would go unanswered. Or so I thought. The way everything was going lately, I could feel something coming. Something bad and it was going to happen soon. I just didn't know what. Hey, came Pia's voice from near the front door. Come inside, there's something you gotta see. I dropped the rake and did as she said, running up the front steps and throwing myself through the front door. Pacing to the other end of the first floor where my kitchen was located, and stopping when I saw something panic-worthy outside the back window. I think they're here for you. Pia leans over, spilling the beans pessimistically. I can try and hold them off, but I don't know. Shh, I interrupted. Through some of the trees in the back of my cabin were what appeared to be nine or so of those strange, black-suited, shady military personnel. And just like the ones in the helicopter, they were armed to the teeth. Their assault rifles held firmly in front of them, looking down the scopes as they scanned the area. Remember, gentlemen, the one in the front says to the others, only use deadly force if absolutely necessary. We need him alive. It wasn't only that, but each one held some sorts of strange, cell phone-shaped device in each of their hands. Using them, sweep the tree line little by little. They continuously beeped, making a low humming sound. God, crap, I just... I stuttered, reaching my hands out of my head and squeezing two different chunks of my hair. My calm demeanor fading as I probed my own mind for a solution. Go, you just gotta go. Pia erupted urgently, her voice echoing throughout the house. I ran upstairs and grabbing my rule sheets, but leaving the laptop behind, not wanting it to be traced in the event that I got away. I didn't run out the door when I came back down. They were beginning to surround the property. I would immediately be incapacitated or subdued the moment that I was outside. Pia, I whisper shouted, is there any way you could teleport me to the edge of the woods, at least far enough for me to run to my car? 
I, I don't know. I've never teleported anyone with me before, she stammers, her tone making it clear that she was unsure of herself. Well, you've got to try it. I need to get out of here and... I was cut short by my front door being kicked down. Three of these shady soldiers from outside immediately filed in. Their weapons trained on me. One of them held out the alien-looking device they had been using to sweep the tree line. Pia raised two of her ghostly hands into the air. All three of the soldiers were immediately flung vertically up against the ceiling via her telekinesis, smashing their backs into the wood and causing a few of the boards to snap on impact. Three more of the mysterious soldiers quickly fluttered their way into the cabin, taking the spots of their now unconscious comrades. She's there. It dispensed the ectomagnet. The one on the left pointed, holding his device in the direction of Pia. It beeped far more rapidly than before, sounding some sort of alarm, seemingly detecting Pia's presence. The soldier in the middle reached into his weapons belt with surprising speed and chucked a yellow-colored, triangular-shaped device across the floor before either Pia or I could react. It drowned the area of the room with white light, like some sort of exotic flashbang. Pia screamed. Her spiritual mass was sucked toward the device as she tried to fight it, but her efforts meant nothing. The device was far too powerful, and she was nothing more than crumbs to a vacuum cleaner. I put my hands up in the air. My rule sheets fall into the ground along my sides. The soldiers screamed for me to get on my knees, and given the situation, I had no choice, so I did as I was told. Knock him out, one commanded. The director will want to talk to him. Whoa, guys, wait, you don't understand, I began. Actually, said the soldier in the middle, we do. Better than you think. And with that, he maintained a straight face as he pulled his gun back and slammed the butt of it into my forehead, hard enough for me to fall back unconscious. I had no recollection of what occurred afterwards, not until I woke up in an unfamiliar room, completely white with no windows. The place looked about as sterile as a spacecraft, not a single stain or imperfection, other than the table in the middle which I was sat at one end of. The door to the room was as white as the ceiling, the floors, and the walls. The only real reason I knew it was there was due to someone entering. A woman made her way in, looking to be around in her early 40s, her blonde hair done in a neat ponytail. A pair of glasses sitting on her face as she sat down with a smile, holding a binder in her left hand. And did I forget to mention she also had a lab coat on? Where the heck am I? I growled, making a useless attempt to move, a simple pair of handcuffs keeping me restrained to my chair. Hello, Mr. Tin. The woman responded coldly, her tone like that of a mother greeting a child that she never wanted. Are you going to answer my question or not? I asked. Are you guys the government or something? Did you see my posts online? Because this isn't exactly the best way of helping. I complained motion into my handcuffed hand. Well, we did see your pulse, actually, the woman answers. Both I and the director were very grateful for all the wonderful information that you provided for us. Who the heck is the director? I fire back. Telling you now wouldn't matter. 
Telling you any of the names wouldn't matter, matter of fact. Well, doctor, I assume that's what you are. Can you tell me what you did with Pia? I demanded, my conviction still passive-aggressive. We've had our supernatural department perform a ritual. She's been moved to where she needs to go. No longer on this planet. The Ouija board you have brought proved to be useful after all. We'll break it down and use the materials for future projects. The parts that can be weaponized quite well. If toyed with correctly. What do you want from me? My silence, I'm guessing. The woman smirks. Almost soothed by my malicious probing. Oh, trust me. We have that fully under control. I would just like to let you know that your problem will be dealt with. I can assure you. She says. Her tone unforgiving in its delivery. It's been on our radar for quite some time now. And you're just now doing something about it. Where have you been? Sitting on your butt doing experiments all day, Christ. I project violently, unable to contain my rage. People are dead and dying and you just sit here in your fancy air-conditioned building, playing with chemicals like it's Legos. Before the woman answers my tirade, the door bursts open. One of these soldiers with the same gear from before leans in and looks at the woman in the lab coat. This time his face is much more visible without his goggles on. Dr. West, the director wants the green light on utilizing 16A for this operation. He's getting antsy, he pronounces. Yes, I already told that idiot that was the plan. Maybe mention that he needs a freaking hearing aid as well. Will do, ma'am, he replies, quickly leaving the room and slamming the door behind him, not even waiting for her to finish the insult. You have two options here. The woman now known to me as Dr. West proclaims. We have seen your intelligence firsthand. The way that you study things, ask the right questions, and go through all this intellectual trouble. My superiors and I are pleased with you. Well, mostly them. You're not that impressive in my personal opinion. This isn't what I think it is, is it? I reply slowly. Ignoring her jab at my intelligence. You of all people should know what I'm saying. Don't play dumb. Because I know that's one of your skills. You've said it yourself. She finishes. Her apathetic demeanor now shifting to a much more bellicose looking one. You're not much of a fighter. But brawn isn't everything. I've been authorized to offer you a job as a researcher here. Studying and analyzing unlikely creatures and entities. You'll be paid very well, I promise. Imagine what you could do with the advanced resources we have here to provide you with. She goes on, looking over a stack of papers in her binder like she's reading off a script, which she technically was. And my other option, I interrogate, already possessing an idea of the answer. Well, to put it bluntly, we'll kill you. A bullet to the head or we'll give you to peril. That is what you call the entity, correct? Wow. So either I work for them or die. I'm guessing everyone and their mother saw this coming. It's painfully obvious that if I were to take this job, I would have to keep everything classified. I'm glad it's obvious. But what you've already posted can be kept in the internet. It's a tool that we use quite often, more than you think. 
I sit there looking blankly at the wall behind her, beginning to weigh my options. On the one hand, I didn't want to die. Taking this job would be a way to still help people from the shadows. I would be paid much better than what I'm already getting, so that was a huge bonus. Plus, it's not like I had a family at home that I would have to leave behind. On the other hand, I didn't trust this lady, nor most of what she was saying. It was shady and that much was obvious. They didn't seem like official government bodies, but that didn't mean it was completely out of the question. Not to mention, I would be going against a lot of my previous integrity and spite for people like this. Turning my back on my convictions. You said you would take care of the peril situation, I asked, breaking the established silence of the room. Yes. The doctor replied, sounding impatient. The consequences of my stalling now becoming visible and her expressions. And how do you plan to do that exactly? He's a monster, a demon. Something not from this world. I don't even know what he is. How do you even kill something like that? You guys got squirt guns filled with holy water. Dr. West smirks, leaning forward slowly and placing her elbows on the table. That is classified and none of your business. Not yet, anyway. The door swings open yet again, interrupting the already frustrated woman. The same soldier from before leans in. His eyes now covered with what I assumed were night vision gear. Hey, we're heading out. 16A is in the back of the transport truck and the team is geared up. Should be back in no less than a few hours, he says. His mannerisms rapid and his speech frantic. Alright, just go and quit talking about it. West shouts at him. Jeez, do you guys need an invitation? Do your jobs, exterminate the target, and shut up. The soldier does as told and exits without standing there for another second. West turns back to me, rubbing her forehead in pure annoyance. You gonna tell me what 16A is? I question, squinting my eyes in order to say, I want answers and I want them now. Listen here, you little... She erupts furiously, only for a sentence to be cut short by yours truly. I'll accept. I announce bluntly. On one condition, I continue pausing for only a slight moment. Well, actually, it's a couple. But it shouldn't be much trouble for you guys considering what you've told me so far. West leans back in her chair, so utterly irritated by my shenanigans that she seems like she'll simply give up any second. You're in no position to make demands, but go ahead. I know you have her information. I mean, you guys are also supposed to be smart, right? Doing your research on these sorts of things. Well, here's what I'm asking. Pia Dunley, the ghost lady that you guys did the ritual on. I want you to find her adopted son and anonymously give him enough money to get through college. Look through records, ask around. Do whatever you gotta do. And I promise, I will accept your offer and I won't try anything funny I will work here as hard as I can until I die. Dr. West leans forward in her chair, giving me the look that says, You can't be serious right now, as she cups her hands together. And, I continue, I want all the victims' families compensated properly. I will even pitch in myself and deliver things to them if necessary. You can keep these secrets about what actually happened, because I know it probably gets you guys off to be shady. 
That can be arranged. Wust replies slowly, turning some papers over inside her binder. But I still don't have the final say in decisions like that. But I'll try and talk to the higher-ups if that's what will finally get you on board. And to also shut up. But if you attempt to spill a word of this to the public, I'll personally make sure that you die the most painful death possible. Maybe even run some pain tolerance experiments on you before killing the lights upstairs. The way you say it doesn't make it sound like a yes. I chimed in, tilting my head to further my point. Fine, I'll talk to my superiors, but just know some of that money is going to be coming from the first year of your salary. The doctor barks. And that's fine with me. You really think I expected you to be actually generous for the sake of being generous? Right. I remarked sarcastically. The door to the room opens yet again. A man around my age, dressed in a suit and tie, walks in. Stopping right at the middle section of the table between Dr. West and I, his suit was just as pristine as the rest of the room. I could have sworn there wasn't a single wrinkle in the fabric. So you're the man we've been keeping a close eye on, he said, feigning a smile. It's nice to meet you. I'm Ted, the director of operations around here. My eyes darted back and forth between the two of them. Everything was happening so fast with so many decisions and so little time. As much as I didn't actually want to work for them, I know accepting this job will not only allow me to continue to help others in the future, but the families whose relatives were victims of peril will be given what they deserve. As for Pia, I wasn't too sad. She was a nice presence to have around. That much was true. But at least she moved on and is no longer trapped here on Earth. So, in the end, it was a positive thing. I guess I could have also thanked them for using their resources to get rid of peril. Even though it should have done much sooner. I turned my attention back over to Ted, aka the director. His welcoming mannerism seemed much more authentic than Dr. West did but there was still that underlying sense of deception laying beneath the surface. We stared each other down. I let out a slow, long exhale before I said the two words. The two words that would change my life forever going forward. My men. Ted's smirk grows wider, this time his joy seeming more genuine. Well then, he pauses dramatically. Welcome to the agency. Welcome to the agency.